Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have a whopper of an episode for you. We are discussing the subject of whether there is a dose-response relationship between training volume and muscle growth. I have Samuel Buckner and Holly Baxter on the show, who recently authored a paper that put some doubts into this relationship. Sam hasn't been on the podcast before, so to let you know a little bit about him, he is the director of the University of South Florida Muscle Laboratory. The lab's research focuses on muscle skeletal adaptation and their current work places an emphasis on understanding the relationship between resistance training volume and skeletal growth adaptations hence that paper and our discussion today in addition to them i have the all-star team that is mena henselmans and josh pelland who have both been on the show before and they're going to try and help us get a deeper understanding of this relationship and josh has also been working on a soon-to-be-released meta-analysis looking at training volume and muscle growth so he is adding some invaluable insights into this discussion too the discussion was incredibly valuable so many important things that have been discussed and they're going to help future research too and help your understanding when you are digesting some of this research which the paper is linked in the description along with everyone who is on the show today all their information so you can find out anything about each individual guest and follow them along on social media too so you know that's there as well and we finished the episode with practical recommendations you can take this information forward into your own training or if you are a coach for your own clients and as always guys this podcast cannot have such caliber of guests and great episodes without help from you whether that's a like a comment a share a review all of these are incredibly helpful especially photos that you can take and share on social media tag every guest that will really help this episode to grow and flourish and uh, it also helps the guests coming on, kind of pays them for their time in a sense with this kind of social media outlet as well. So I appreciate all of that sharing. But without further ado, let's get into the chat. So Holly, we are just talking off air and you had a really interesting thought about how we might intro this whole discussion. And that is kind of giving your background and maybe giving some insights into where you're coming from, maybe a bias even. And so I thought I'd just literally hand it directly over to you. <laughs> and so you can kind of cover where you're coming from and maybe some perspectives that's kind of, yeah, I mean, the perspective that you have now when you're looking at training volume research and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. No pressure at all. <laughs> well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, making the time for all of us to meet. I know it's been a little bit of a handful getting this together, uh, not only with so many people, but uh, also I know you've had some personal stresses uh, in your life that have made it a bit more challenging. So I think we're all grateful for the opportunity to be here today. But you're exactly right. I, I think I wanted to maybe start by talking about each of our individual perspectives uh, on the subject of muscle hypertrophy in relation to training volume. Obviously, we're, we're here to talk about our recent publication. But I think I want to start with maybe Menno because I've known Menno probably or known of Menno for the longest. Uh, and I think he brings a wealth of information to the table. I mean, I've, I've followed not only his social media, we've presented at uh, seminars in person together. I think he delivers a really wide variety of great uh, health and fitness content in general, uh, which is fantastic. And I know he's also got a lot of businesses uh, in this space. I know that you do courses, you run seminars, you're traveling the world, which we just heard about moments ago, uh, and you're spending a lot of time, uh, you know, in that social media space. 
So I think he has a very different perspective than maybe even someone like Josh, who I know is currently doing his PhD um, in the space of of training uh, muscle, had, muscle hypertrophy adaptations and volume. So I think his perspective is going to be really unique and interesting in the context of today's discussion. And actually only recently found out about Josh through your podcast too, which I really enjoyed listening to that. So thanks guys. It was awesome. Um, and then I'm going to leave Sam to last, but, you know, deviating back to myself, I think I, I come from this from perspective of nutritional sciences primarily. So I did my undergrad in food science, nutrition background in, uh, I guess, dietetics. So very heavy on the nutrition side, but I also have a really strong interest in muscle hypertrophy and growth. Um, from a couple of perspectives, personally, my career right now is very much involved in the physique sports. So I compete as a professional physique athlete still. Uh, I've been doing that for almost a decade now. So I'm really, really interested in how I can take the evidence uh, information that exists and apply it to what I'm doing practically in the gym, but then also applying that to my businesses and the clients that we work with in a one-on-one -on -one perspective. Um, and I think that's really important because we all come from this from a different, from a different space. And it wasn't really until recently when I started writing a book and I spent a bit more time with Sam, he actually was my mentor and advisor in this recent book writing that one of the things that I noticed was that his perspective, um, as a professor and, you know, full-time, uh, researcher who's in the lab writing research, running research and reading a lot. Uh, was actually quite a bit different to what I had heard in the land of social media and what was being communicated by other social media influencers in the evidence-based space. So I'm, I'm actually really excited to hear what he's got to say today because I think what I have learned just over the last several months of working really closely with Sam, I don't think has quite made it to mainstream social media. And whilst there's a lot of overlap, I think, in the conversations that all of us are going to have today, I think he actually had quite unique perspectives. And it's really interesting. I loved talking to him about this because it just wasn't being uh, communicated, you know, over on Instagram or YouTube or, or Twitter or what have you, because he is so in the lab. So with that being said, I mean, I want to kick this over to Sam. Obviously, he's the lead author on our paper on training volumes. So Sam, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you find my perspective interesting. I think some people find it annoying. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this, this paper was exciting to write. And I, I think for me, it was a long time coming. Um, and, and Holly, you, you played a large part in encouraging me to write this paper because, you know, I would see posts every day on Instagram and I'd get so frustrated and I'd get frustrated because, um, you know, oftentimes I feel like one side of an argument or one perspective gets communicated. And when one popular person has a perspective, other people share their perspective and, and then it kind of propagates and, and travels and, um, I, I think that the catalyst for this paper was actually maybe a two week time span where I saw uh, two dozen posts on why you need to take long rest periods if you care about maximizing skeletal muscle growth. And I was aware of the research behind this recommendation. And, you know, this one rest period paper and the data for me was just a little too good to be true. So I was cautious of my interpretation of that particular study. And then another study had come out where they had different groups where they volume matched or 
um, took long rest, short rest, and volume matched. And when I read that study, I realized that it was kind of designed to fail, in, in my opinion. Um, but I realized the problem was I had a different perspective than a lot of people reading research. And this perspective was driven by the fact that when I read a paper, I think about how much muscle growth is occurring. And I interpret that in the context of my experience and what I've read in other papers. And the, the example I gave in class the other night is if we read a paper, and in that paper at the group level, squat 1RM increases by 500 pounds, everyone's going to go, hold on, wait a second. How did squat 1RM increase 500 pounds in people who've been habitually lifting, right? That would be something that would raise a bit of caution, and we would say, you know what, we need to replicate this study. But when it comes to skeletal muscle growth, I, I don't think we have the same intimate relationship or knowledge of what changes in muscle size might look like or, or perhaps should look like. Um, and so volume was kind of the, the vehicle I used to start this discussion. And, and I think volume is a really relevant area to, to discuss because it it is so prevalent on social media. It's It's, you know, you could find a dozen podcasts in the past three months on, on volume. And in all of these discussions, what I noticed is they talk about group A was different than group B, but they don't talk about what's the magnitude difference between these groups. Because sometimes you'll read a study and that study will have on average two sets difference weekly, um, or like, like let's say one group's doing 22 sets, the other group's doing 22 set, 24 sets on average. But then the muscle growth is double. So someone might say, oh, it's significantly different. This group grew better than this group. But what I do when I read that paper is I go, how was four sets or two sets difference able to achieve double the growth? So I want to have that conversation instead of a conversation, you know, this technique was better than this technique. Um, and that's how I approach most of the muscle growth research. I, I have, a, a, I don't know, just a fascination with, you know, how much muscle growth can we achieve over time, right? And, and what should muscle growth look like over eight weeks? I think when we read a study, we should have some type of expectation, just like we have some type of expectation of, you know, how much can your bench press increase over eight weeks, over 12 weeks, over six months? Um, so, you know, I, I hope this is how the paper is received because, you know, my sincere hope with this paper is that people think about muscle maybe just a little bit differently and perhaps a little bit more critically. Um, and and I, I don't want to go on too long, and I don't want to take up too much of the conversation. But, um, you know, there's some really interesting things we can talk about. You know, I when I was helping or advising Holly with, with the book she was writing, you know, I think she has a chapter on the limits of, of human skeletal muscle growth. Um, you know, assuming you're not using anabolic steroids. And I tend to think that a person who's you know natty not using anabolics can probably increase their muscle size somewhere around one and a half centimeters throughout their training career right so when you see a study that has 0.7 in eight weeks to me that's very very impressive right so i want to have a discussion on okay how did this happen and is this possible or is it possible that there's some swelling or inflammation that we're conflating as muscle growth that to me is a more interesting conversation some of the time than a, a debate over this technique versus that technique. Um, and so one of the first things we talk about in this paper 
um, is evidence for and evidence against um, a dose-response relationship between resistance training volume and muscle growth. Um, and in that conversation, we we kind of framed that I I believe, um, at least on social media, we're a bit more critical of studies that um, don't observe a dose-response relationship, and we're a bit more accepting of studies that do see a dose-response relationship. And um, this will be my last point, and I promise I'll, I'll quiet down and let everyone speak. But I think a good example is the NS paper. Um, the NS paper, the 52-set paper, um, did not find significant differences between their groups, right? But I've heard, again, probably a dozen podcasts on why, despite not being significant, it's still meaningful. And um, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, if that same study did not reach statistical significance, but was leaning towards moderate volumes being better than high volumes, no one would talk about it. And no one would break down why it's not significant, but we still know that this is better than that. Um, and then in the context of the Ennis, and I'm just using this as an example, when you look at the Ennis paper, you know, they crafted muscle CSA by taking muscle thickness images, putting them in PowerPoint, and tracing the cross-sectional area. When you do that, you get a lot of error, right? And when you get a lot of error, you need a control group to know how meaningful is my difference between this group and that group? Because it could very well be that that difference that you think you're finding is actually error of the measurement. And, and maybe we'll get into that paper a bit later. Um, but the last thing, using the NS paper as an example, um, in, a, in a podcast I listened to recently where they were breaking down that 52-set paper, and, and Steve, it was, it was on your podcast, and you did a great job. I, I really enjoyed the podcast, listened to it a few times. But in that discussion, Brad said that people that are questioning the Ennis paper and suggesting that there's swelling and inflammation, he said it more than once that people that are criticizing this study have a bias and some sort of agenda. And when I listened to that, and, and I, it, you know, maybe he misspoke and maybe he would share a different view, but I thought that was an unfortunate perspective because people saying that when you do 52 sets, there's possibility that swelling and inflammation could be influencing your measurement. I think that's a very legitimate criticism. We've looked at swelling, but we've looked at swelling following, you know, the DeMoss paper that was cited looked at 12 weekly sets, right? And they said it took at, at three weeks into doing 12 sets, you still have too much swelling to measure growth. So when you progress your volume up to 52, it's a novel stimulus. And when it's only for the last two weeks of the study, it's, it's, it's very possible in my perspective that you have swelling, that you have inflammation, and that it, it's, it's at least conceivable and shouldn't be dismissed that the non-significant increase in the large variability is driven by differences in swelling and inflammation. And, and I just think the, LS, the NS paper is a, a good example because it's, it's relevant right now and everyone's talking about it. Um, but yeah, with that, I guess I'll open it up to a discussion on um, evidence for and against dose response. But I... I believe that the data is is very unclear and and, and kind of all over the place. Sorry what for the said, no, 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 it was good. It was good also uh, with Holly kind of basing everyone's background because I recently had Eduardo D'Souza on who was on that 
paper uh, where he was kind of giving all the caveats to volume research because I think he probably had a somewhat of a similar perspective, maybe some frustrations of how some things have been interpreted or spoken about. So I think it is useful to have, because uh, I, I think you, even lab coats, guys in the lab, they get kind of uh, like a hard time because they're not lifting and they haven't got like experience with many clients and things like this. So I think it's, this is what I love about this podcast is getting people like everyone on this uh, who have like many perspectives to share and insights that I think are truly valuable. So I, I appreciate that. And uh yeah, I can appreciate some of your sentiments uh, surrounding kind of some of your skepticism there. And I think it's it's a question to be had. And I guess I would pass over uh, some of those questions to Menno if you if you have any particular thoughts, if you want to go first, and then maybe Josh can come in afterwards. Sure. Uh, there are a lot of things to talk about. Uh, let, let's start, I think, with the big picture, as far as I'm concerned. I think uh, Sam raises a lot of very good points. And in general, it's well known that small studies tend to find inflated effect sizes. So I think what we can get in terms of how much muscle can you build, what's the, the magnitude of difference between five and 10 sets, looking at one individual study is going to get you very unclear answers. And depending on which study you look at, the difference might be very, very different. Uh, it's also well known that in exercise science, we are at a in a relatively new field, it's basically since the 90s or so that we've really had evidence-based fitness. And it's not a popular field. It's difficult to get subjects. So most of the studies are small. If you compare it to, say, psychological literature or economical literature, um, the field of lit or literature in general is, is not good. So in, in individual studies in general are, are not going to be extremely informative. And that's why I think it is very important to look at meta-analyses to get like a big picture view when we have sufficient studies and they are relatively uh, com comparable. And <clears throat> what meta-analyses do is when you look at a big picture of multiple studies, it takes away a, a big part of the, the type two error. So the fact that individual comparisons between groups are very unlikely to become significant. And especially in these dose response studies, when we're talking about 20, 30 subjects and you have three groups, like low, medium, high volume, is going to be very difficult to find a significant difference between every measure in every single group. So the, the bar of evidence from a scientific perspective to really get a clear dose response, because as Sam said, that is what you would want. You would want to see this is different from this, this is different from this, then we can say there's a dose response. And we kind of, uh, many practitioners at least, um, allow some leeway with that standard when the the trend in general is a dose response, and we don't necessarily see that it's statistically different um, between groups for every single comparison. And if we look at meta-analyses, volume is a very strong driver of muscle growth. We have the um, Basvai meta-analyses of higher volumes, the Schoenfeld meta-analyses of 10 plus sets. We have Krieger's original meta-analyses. Uh, we also have unofficial further meta-analyses by Krieger. And we have two relatively recent ones, one involving Stuart Phillips and another one that I reviewed them on my YouTube channel. Um, they basically took a super big picture view and looked at, okay, if we look at all the variables that might matter for muscle growth, which are the ones that are somewhat consistent, really consistent by their standards, and volume came out as one of the big ones for muscle growth. So in that sense, when we take a really big picture view, I do think the evidence is quite robust and from a practical standpoint, enough to say that if you want to maximize muscle growth, you probably want to err on the side of higher volumes, provided that you can recover from that. 
that's basically my view as a practitioner. And there's a, um, to come back to Holly, it's, it's good to realize that there's a very big difference here between whether we are talking about it from a scientific perspective or whether we are talking about it from a practitioner's perspective. Like it, given the costs and benefits and the probabilities of um, what's likely to happen in terms of how much muscle you're gonna gain and your goals, that's the practitioner's perspective. And then the scientific perspective is, hey, can we really say with a very, very high level of confidence that indeed there is going to be a difference between 20 and 15 sets? And I think before we ever get to that point, it's going to be a long time because it's also going to be very individual. So it, we have to, from a practical standpoint, I think, take the scientific literature with the perspective of, with its limitations in mind, let me put it that way. So that's kind of my big picture perspective, and I'm sure we can go into all of the, the individual points because there are some good ones about the uh, your paper about saying Bradshaw and Feld's effect sizes, or at least the, the raw measurement values are extremely high. Uh, one of the rest of the Feld's paper I was also involved with, so we can also get into that. But I'll leave that uh, to you, Steve, because it's your show. <laughs> No, I'd great to hear your perspective and uh, drawing us back to kind of uh, why meta-analyses are so beneficial there and all the ones that have gone in the past so far have obviously shown that volume is pretty damn important. Uh, I'll pass it over to Josh to see if you have any additional comments or perspectives to add there and then uh, I'll hand it over to Holly or Sam, depending on who uh, feels like they want to go next. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll try to make this quick because I'm, I'm excited to dive into some of the the finer points here because like uh, Menno said I think Sam brings up a, a lot of good points um, but to take a step back I'd say I'm generally of two minds here um, and that's because I'm a scientist right now um, and I'm also a strength coach and then kind of when I can fit it in uh, create some content for the internet as well um, and kind of to to second Menno's point there I think it's easy for the content creator to point the finger or to critique the scientist. And it's also easy the other way around. It's easy for the scientist to critique the content creator. And I'm sympathetic to both perspectives because at least to some degree, I've I've been in both of those positions. Um, and it's not easy because ultimately you have different audiences, right? Scientific papers in exercise science are often read by um, practitioners or just interested trainees but at the end of the day they are designed for other scientists whereas content for the internet is primarily designed for um the trainee themselves or or other coaches and it's it's challenging because you know i i put out what i think was a a very uh balanced perspective on something like the the ennis study um and the creation of that or, or kind of taking that balanced approach, you are choosing less engagement as a result of that approach, right? And I don't think there's a right answer here. I think it is a difficult problem. And again, that's why I'm sympathetic towards both perspectives. And it's it's just not easy for, again, both the, the scientist and for the, the content creator. So I'm kind of, of of two minds there. I don't want to misattribute this tweet, but I saw this tweet from some scientists in our field. And it was something to the effect of, the only thing I can say with a high degree of confidence is that resistance training works. And I, I do think there's some truth to that, right? Um, but then as a, as a practitioner, um, as a trainee or as a coach, you also need to make decisions. And, and again, kind of to Menno's point, um, you need to create suggestions that are not 
like overly complex in the absence of certainty. Um, and because it's a relatively, you know, new field, there is a high degree of, of uncertainty. Um, and specifically regarding training volume. So um, as I think someone alluded to earlier, my PhD is in kind of this realm of, of training volume. Um, it's more specifically on skeletal muscle resensitization, but there's a lot of overlap here with, with volume in general. Um, and I agree with a lot of Sam's point about reading uh, exercise science research critically and contextualizing those findings. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and on this topic of, of training volume, something that we're interested in as a lab group and, and something we're in progress of is to better, is to better understand that dose-response relationship um, and the nature of that dose-response relationship um, and the certainty of that dose-response relationship at different levels of training volume. So we're in progress of, of some meta-regressions right now um, that instead of just kind of dichotomizing, okay, this was a low-volume study, this was a high-volume study, we can get some better insight into, again, the, the nature of that relationship. Because there is a lot of variability, which both Menno and, and Sam pointed out, right? There's biological variability, there's measurement variability, there's sampling variability. There's just a lot going on that makes any one study, especially in small sample research like our field, and also generally small effects, very difficult to interpret until you have, like Menno said, a meta-analysis or meta-regression or something to that effect. Um, so I think it's, that's why I think this, this discussion is worth having. Um, I definitely have some thoughts on some of the specific points raised, but um, I guess I'm kind of doubling down on, on both perspectives presented uh, up to this point. Josh, just, um, just cause I'm going to push you for an answer. Cause so Menno thinks there is a dose response relationship, I think from your answer there. And obviously Sam said, he thinks there's maybe some question. He's got some questions. I mean, that's what the whole paper is about. Do you have like a, what do you have like a sense of direction with that relationship for yourself? Yeah, what I can say at this point is from kind of our, our preliminary steps here within the the actual analysis perspective, right? The the extraction is is essentially done here. Um the 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 whole point of the project is to better understand the nature of the relationship and contextualize the the variability within that relationship and the effects we see. Um, but what I can say again from my preliminary perspective is that similar to how Schoenfeld in 2017 saw a significant relationship in terms of a, a linear uh, a linear model between volume and standardized effective hypertrophy. Um, we also found that, right, with a lot more studies in there. So I do think there is a dose-response relationship. Um, our kind of preliminary results would indicate that, but that's a very, very small part of the project because there are a lot of other research questions we're, we're attempting to answer. But I would I guess fall more on that pro volume side of things from a practitioner perspective, but again, I'm I'm sympathetic or I'm very understanding of some of the limitations of the the research in general. Yeah, I would I would add that I think very few people have not put words in Sam's mouth, but I think also Sam probably doesn't think there really isn't any dose response. It's almost self evident that there is a dose response. I don't think there are a lot of people that think, oh, if you do one set per month, for example. That's pretty much it. And then if you do two sets, no, for no further difference, you know, a set every week, no, it doesn't matter. It's just one set a month is good, right? Or maybe even per year. So th there is clearly some type of those response effects. The question is, how does that curve look? And how many sets are we looking at? And I think these days we're mostly looking at the amount of sets per muscle group per week. And we're kind of figuring out where exactly that um, the curve stops. Does it plateau and does it go down? And then the current thinking by most people is that we have this inverted U curve where you get benefits up to a certain point, which is generally thought to be in the range of 10 to 20 sets. And I think it 
can be higher. And there are a lot of studies, um, especially like the Innis paper, that suggest it might be much higher under certain circumstances, at least. And then at some point, we would expect it to taper off and actually become negative. Like you would actually start uh, hurting your gains because you're overreaching and then overtraining. So I guess that, that's kind of the current thinking, um, more in terms of where the curve lies than um, really whether there is any of those response. So. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, and I think um, that was fair. Of well, I, I don't think Sam thinks there's no relationship like dose response at all, and you have to do something. Uh, we're not like Men Mike Mensah kind of advocates in that regard. It's just maybe his perspective. Well, I won't speak for Sam, but I'm guessing your perspective might be to question some of how high and how much of a difference those additional sets make that are coming out within some of the research. But I don't know if you had any points you wanted to raise, Sam, um, kind of based off Meadow and Josh's. Yeah, I. I, I would suspect that our volume recommendations would probably be pretty similar. Um, you know, I, I I think all of us here would, would actually probably have pretty consistent agreement. I My critique is more so one of the literature in, in some of the studies that are used to make certain points. And I, I think the, the, the volume literature is it's it's used on this more macro basis, you know, and, and again, I think the rest period is just a good example because within this session, if you rest shorter and you reduce your volume, you lose out on gains, right? That's an example. It's not weekly sets. It's just it's within session volume. And I think probably a lot of my critiques are more focusing on that within session volume. And, you know, I don't even think of volume as weekly because I think that's problematic, right? If you told me you did 20 weekly sets for quads, well, if you did all those 20 weekly sets in one session, right, I think you wasted a lot of your time. If you split it up against three sets, three, three sessions, it becomes more interesting, right? So, and, and you know, using the extreme example of the 52 set paper, um, you're doing nine sets, I mean, at the highest volume, you're doing nine sets of leg press, nine sets of squat, and you're following that with eight sets of knee extension. So on that extreme end, my critique there is, I think you maximize what you can get out of the leg press after around your third or fourth set of that exercise. After that, you're contracting your muscle, you're, you're burning some calories, but I don't think you're getting more out of that. And then you move on to the squat. And, you know, you already have some fatigue in those muscles. You've already activated some muscle growth in those muscles, but you're probably hitting some of the musculature in a different way. You need to fatigue and activate those fibers to stimulate them to growth. But certainly within a session, there's a point where in a lot of these studies we're contracting, but I, I see no physiological reason to believe you're getting more muscle growth. I, um, I had a conversation with uh, another podcast host because I just reached out and I said, in your podcast on volume, you talked about weekly volume the whole time, but you got to break it down to what they're doing per session, right? Because if if you have a lot of volume and you're telling me that volume works, but it's organized in a way that makes no sense. And I'm not saying the study makes no sense. I'm saying I don't see any reason to ever do nine sets of an exercise because I don't think the muscle protein synthetic response is infinite. The, the example I use in class, and my analogies are horrible, so I apologize to all of y'all. Um, but I, I with volume equation, my, my first example was if it takes a pizza, a frozen pizza, 30 minutes to cook, 
you wouldn't take that pizza out of the freezer, put it in the oven for 10 minutes on Monday, put it back in the freezer, take it out on Wednesday, put it in the oven for 10 minutes, put it back in the freezer, and then take it out on Friday, put it in the oven for 10 minutes and put it back in the freezer. You never fully cooked your pizza. You never enjoyed your pizza. You never accomplished anything. Um, and, and this analogy, I know it falls apart, but hopefully it lands. That's why I don't like volume equated studies because you need that 30 minutes. You don't need 10 minutes three times and putting it back in the freezer. But on the same token, if it takes 30 minutes to cook a pizza, you're not going to take it out of the freezer and put it in the oven for an hour and a half. And in my opinion, some of these studies are just way overdoing it. Um, but back to my point, my conversation with this podcast host, I, I said, you know, certainly somewhere after the fourth or fifth set, you're, you're not accomplishing ad additional gains. But he said, yeah, I don't see why you wouldn't. And, and, and I, I suppose some people just have the perspective that if you do more, you will gain more. Um, but I don't think this is true. I don't think this could be true. Um, and I noticed, you know, you know, when Milo and Pac were making their memes in, in the comment section on that volume, I, I, I saw people just saying, you know, we, we tested this SHIT in the trenches, you know, like we like saying I've trained with this type of volume or I can do this type of volume. Well, you know what? I could do it myself, I think. But just because you can do something doesn't mean it's doing anything meaningful for an adaptation. Right. I could go do 50 sets right now of biceps. Right. But but I know somewhere after my third or fourth set, I've maximized the response I can get out of those fibers in that moment. And if I do additional sets, that's cool. I mean, I'm delaying my recovery. I'm delaying my uh, ability to train again in a couple of days. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think I think the intercession volume is probably the the discussion that's more interesting to me because, you know, I think of muscle as you walk in the gym, you have a baseline muscle, you want to maximize the muscle protein synthetic response in each movement that you're performing. So in each movement, at what point is that contraction no longer eliciting an anabolic response? And I heard Keith Barr on a podcast probably a decade ago, and he said he suspects that with single joint movements, simple movements, that you get 80 to 90% of the response out of your first set if you're training to a near failure. Sets two, three, and four are the insurance policy to make sure you've activated and stimulated and sufficiently fatigued all of the fibers involved in that movement. If that's true, and I, I'm not saying that's necessarily true, I'm saying I largely believe that to be true, what are you accomplishing with set five, set six, set seven, set eight, set nine? Like, what's happening beyond there physiologically? You know, I, And I think that's a worthwhile discussion to have. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely made sense. And I find myself as a practitioner agreeing with you in terms of like, yeah, thinking about leg press and <laughs> I think it was nine sets you said, I'm like, hell, like I'm struggling with three, like let alone like trying to push further than that. But I also have to frame it in terms of individual differences. And uh, and I guess this is where your skepticism of the Enos paper comes in, where they did see better growth from having pushed to such a point. But that's where you're seeing just the potential for swelling being there, which I don't know if we want to jump to that discussion point already, or if Mike, uh, sorry, if Menno or if you, Josh, have any comments to that or Holly, you clearly do. So you yeah, can go. <laughs> I'd love to jump in, but I'm hesitant to start speaking because apparently my neighbors decided to jackhammer their floors and bring out the sledgehammer today. I'm really having a hard time hearing you guys. It's so noisy here. So I'll try to keep this brief, but 
I think um, really great points from everybody. But I mean, I look at this from the practical sense in that, you know, as somebody that is, you know, writing programs for people a lot, I think, you know, with all of the high volume training studies that are coming to the surface, number one, I think it's great that we're exploring high volume training, you know, if it has the potential to produce more meaningful outcomes, then that's fantastic. But I think our argument is less about, you know, that there is potentially this, um, you know, linear response, but more about the actual growth measurements that we've seen coming out of some of the Schoenfeld um, lab studies. Um, and again, if we look back to our paper, we present some 75 uh, instances um, from various studies where the mean at a group level uh, growth outcomes are about 0.4 of a centimeter on average. Whereas these couple of papers in you know these findings are showing you know upwards of 0 0.68, 0 0.72. So you know we're looking at magnitudes that are you know twofold and in some places up to sevenfold greater than what we're seeing in all these other studies. Now, it may very well be true, um, you know, until we have more studies, I think, that are assessing these high volume scenarios. I don't know that we can discredit that information. And I don't think that's what we're doing, at least not how we've portrayed it in our paper. But I think that we do need to exercise a bit of caution purely from a practical perspective. You know, if I'm about to sit down and write my program for Miss Betty, who's in her mid 40s, you know, and she wants to get good results, you know, am I going to sit down and give her 45 working sets on a specific muscle group? You know, if she wants to improve her glutes or her shoulders, you know, is that a volume that I want to prescribe given that I know it's about to take her two hours in the gym? Um, and I'm potentially, you know, risking an injury. Um, it's a lot of time and energy and effort. Uh, we want to really make sure that what we're prescribing is sound uh, before we go ahead and make these blanket recommendations. And I think one of the points that Sam made earlier, and I apologize if you can hear that jackhammer, it is really frustrating for me. Um, it it's, it's, oh, you can't? Great. Wonderful. So I think one of the points um, that Sam made before and now I'm distracted totally, um, was that, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Remind me what I was just saying. Taking your results at face value. Um, yeah, I think we just have to effect. be really, yeah, I think we have to be really mindful of um, what we, uh, you know, communicate to our clients and also what we prescribe because it's a lot of volume. And right now we don't have a large global amount of research that would suggest that this is factual. You know, if we look at all of the other growth outcomes, they're, you know, significantly less. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the perspective that I wanted to have. And I hope we can kind of talk a little bit more about, you know, what other studies do we see with this amount of growth? And at least from what we can account in the literature, there were only, you know, two or three papers that have found meaningful results of this magnitude. Um, and some of them have been retracted. Some of them are in um, or comparable to studies with people using anabolic steroids. So I know I've really just jumped this to another level, but I, I think it's just worth putting that into context with the rest of the research. So, Yeah, I, I think your points make complete sense. I, I just, as a complete side note, I posted a story of like my weekly set volume for my quads and I had a few people message me and they were like, that was just one workout, right? I was like, 
no, that was like my week. They're like, and a few people said, oh, did you not see the Enis study? I'm like, yeah, I saw the study, but I mean, that's not, I don't suddenly, you know, I want my quads to grow, but I mean, I also want to be able to recover, which is a key point Menno said at the beginning there. It's like people need to be recovering from this and I don't know how many people listening to the podcast would be able to. Go ahead, Holly. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, one of the things that I did as soon as I read the 52 set, you know, paper, and I guess um, obviously the whole the whole study isn't, you know, 52 sets per week. It's obviously progressively increasing, uh, you know, every every two weeks. But uh, I went back and looked at my most difficult training sessions. So in one of my heaviest builds back in 2020, uh, and I've got them looking at them right now, and I know that my glute and shoulders for me as a female competitor are the most important muscle groups uh, as a bikini competitor. Uh, and the most number of weekly sets that I did on my lower body in total uh, was about 80 sets of which 30 to 35 of those were specifically on glutes. And that was evenly distributed between glute medius and glute max. So when I look at the other exercises that I was including in that program, the next closest weekly set volume, and I know Sam talked specifically about session volume, and I know that's really important. So again, we have to give context to how we then set up a program for our clients. But the next closest for me as a professional fitness athlete, I was doing 30 sets uh, on my quads and then it drops down pretty significantly to only 20 and then everything less or was less for my, for my, uh, for my upper body. So, you know, there's a big difference here in, you know, these training volumes and those sessions took me about 90 minutes to two hours in total. So, you know, I, I look at that and say, that's a huge amount of volume. Now I'm happy to prescribe that to clients as well, if they want really good results. But I think the bigger question is, is that necessary? And I don't know that we're quite there yet in terms of having enough um, a volume of studies to really support that doing that kind of volume, you know, in the case of the Schoenfeld study where they're doing 45 sets in the high volume group, is that necessary? I've never done that in my entire career and I'm a professional athlete and it takes a lot of time. So I just want to be really um, skeptical, at least cautious rather, in how we interpret that information uh, and then portray that to the lay person. Yeah, I think that that's very well said. And um, I'm actually interested to hear Menno and Josh's thoughts on kind of that skepticism uh, over the results from Brad's lab. Like you know, they are quite out there in terms of the results that they've seen how have you looked at that have you also had that kind of similar skepticism don't know if menno you want to start right so the it's it's mainly about the brad schoenfeld's rest interval study and his 45 set volume study i was involved in the rest interval study um let me start with what probably is at least for for some listeners um implied potentially is the legitimacy of brad schoenfeld's results and i would say that Brad Schoenfeld is um, one of the most reputable researchers that literally has the track record of disproving his own hypotheses the most of almost anyone I know in exercise science. So he probably has the record of the amount of times that he has published research that has falsified his own methods, falsified what he advocated in his own books. So uh, I definitely don't have any fears of Brad Schoenfeld's results being uh, crooked. Also, I've analyzed the results James Krieger has analyzed results, and um, uh, with all due respect to Brad Schoenfeld, I don't think he would be able to fraud the, the data to um, not have it visible for, for these studies. So I don't think data fraud, not that anyone's implying it, but I know that listeners will think it is at least, uh, it is at least implied, is, is a really a concern here. I think maybe 
Um, he, he does the ultrasound measurements of his own studies most of the time. That could play a role. It's a small study. You get high effect sizes. Um, in, in your paper, you at, you looked at the total results. I don't know if you also looked at the effect sizes. I think those are smaller. They are a little bit less outlying. So then that would mean that the variance is also higher. The results are also, they are high. Um, I think in Greg Knuckles's or the, the white paper that Greg Knuckles et al. did on the Barbalio studies, they found that Barbalio studies, which are about the same level of outlier, are indeed certainly outliers, but there are multiple other papers when you extend the search a bit below um, or above other types of um, studies. There are other studies that have found these types of results. The Brigato study is not too far off. And of course, part of it is that the idea is that the results are indeed better because higher volumes are better, right? So you, it's also kind of implied that you we get these higher effect sizes because the volume actually works. So um, regardless of all of that, I totally agree that the interpretation of these effect sizes or magnitudes from that study alone and extrapolating that to the percentage gain difference that you would get in practice is 100% not doable. And uh, just is completely falsified as well by the other literature because there are also multiple other studies that don't find nearly such effects. So we have to look at these more meta-analyses to look at really what kind of incremental gains are we getting by increasing the volume above this level. And I, I think almost everybody would probably agree with that. And there are very few practitioners that I know that even consider 45 or 52 sets. Also 52 was what they ended up with at the end, right? You would have to kind of look at the average, I think. And then the study essentially said, you probably want to do over 22 and maybe even over 30, 32 or 35. And I mean, these, these things sound ridiculous to practitioners, to some practitioners at least. Some bodybuilders would say, oh, and like the maybe the ones that uh, DM Steve and they they scoff at these figures. But as mere mortals, uh, we find it difficult to conceive of the fact that anyone would benefit of 45 sets per week per muscle group. However, this is not an isolated finding. Yes, it Brad Schoenfeld 45 sets study found it, but it was a replication of the Red Daily study in the Brazilian Navy. After that, we have the Anus paper that recently came out. We have the Brigato study. So it is not uh, it may be an outlier in terms of the amount of ultrasound centimeters muscle thickness difference that they found, but it is not an outlier in the general trend of the research. We have multiple very different papers that have found this, this dose response. And then a few other papers, the AUP and Ostrowski et al., however you pronounce it, that did not find real dose response. And even the German volume training study, which found that at some point it becomes negative, which what most people also would think that. So again, that's why we have to look at what happens when you meta-analyze it, put it all together, and then see where, where kind of where do we get this curve? And then in the grand scheme of things, even five studies that in, in exercise science, considering the amount of variability between people and how much muscle they gain, if you compare Arnold Schwarzenegger or the average individual, right, you're gonna get massive differences as well. So then even then, yeah, five studies is not that much to go with. But for to get back to the point about Brad Schoenfeld's uh, results, I don't think these results are incredible. Um, I think we we expect that, you know, there's going to be one paper at least that has the highest value. If we eliminate Schoenfeld's study, then what's, you know, what's the next highest one? Then we maybe we look at the Biriato paper and be like, oh, that one's really high, right? So at least some papers going to be the highest. It, it is maybe somewhat curious that two of those papers are from Brad Schoenfeld's lab, but 
uh, I, I have very little doubt that there is a, um, a malicious uh, explanation for that. Yeah, I mean, let me just step in and say that, Manu, I don't think uh, for a second, we're, at least from my perspective, Sam may speak for himself. Uh, I don't think that we we think that it's fabricated data, that's for sure. Um, I think we've just kind of had lots of discussions around the potential implications of swelling um, with you know, such increases in training volume and in such short time span as well. So I just wanted to clarify that. I know that it might've sounded that way, but I uh, certainly wasn't intended to be. Yeah. And I, um, I'll, I'll echo that. I, from what I hear, he's a, a great human and he does really cool stuff, has cool ideas. So, and if he listens to this, you know, keep, keep doing what you do. I, you know, questioning, I mean, my dad is definitely going to be questioned. I'm sure a lot of it has my stuff on periodization for sure. Um, it makes us all better, you know, t talking about magnitudes of growth, uh, you know, if it turns out to be true. Um, and I was just wrong here today. I, we're better for talking about it and better understanding a magnitude of growth. So, um, yeah, man, I, I definitely don't think I, I, I wouldn't leverage any. I don't think there's anything nefarious going on. I think it's an interesting finding. And I, and I think personally, I want to know more about it. Um, but I would push back a little bit on how much we can actually learn from a, a, a meta because, you know, when you look at the studies individually, I, I still like the Brigado study, my, my major issue, with the Brigado study, right, which was at 16, 24, 32, I think, weekly sets. Um, statistically, 32 is different than 16, but 32 wasn't different than 24. But my main issue with the study is they used A-mode ultrasound. Now, A-mode ultrasound was designed to be able to, like, it, it's a, it's a fairly new technology. I think it's about 10 years old. Well, 10 years old in our applied exercise science world. Um, but when the Intellimatrix came out, it was designed for body composition and it's been used in a few studies to measure muscle growth. And I don't think we included the Brigado in our study because it didn't even make my table of, of muscle size because I do not believe you can measure muscle growth with a mode ultrasound. And I will explain why. Um, when you use AMO, and, and I, it's for the listener, I know you guys might be privy to this, but when you use AMO ultrasound, it sends a, sig a single wave down and it comes back. So when you image muscle, you're meant to look at the muscle, you're meant to center the muscle um, bone interface so you can have a, a consistent and reliable measure. With AMO ultrasound, you have no live imaging. You put this probe on the muscle belly and you push a button and it sends a signal, signal down, and it comes back. And you don't know what interface you're detecting. You have no ability to differentiate there. Um, so we did a study probably four or five years ago, and we were able to measure acute swelling with a modal ultrasound. But I have little to no confidence in our ability to measure growth with a modal ultrasound. And, and to just to, you know, you have thousands of waves traveling down into B modal ultrasound probe one single signal a mode ultrasound and maybe with training you could do it but your your error when you're using a mode ultrasound to measure muscle is going to be incredible and especially uh, did they have a control group in Brigado I can't remember but you would you would absolutely need a control group to know can I even replicate the same number consistently over an eight to 12 week time period um and that's just Brigado but if if we if we look at some of these other studies um I think didn't Aub, um, and I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, uh, but the the Aub study on its own, I, I I feel like didn't find differences between their volumes, and it was 12, 18, and, and 24. 
um, and an effect for time. So again, you know, we can plug these into a, a meta-analysis, but the data is very much all over the place and, and, and inconsistent. And then individually, I think um, there's issues with these studies that, you know, personally, I, I just think we need a few well-designed large studies with control groups. And I, I think that would be more powerful than the current meta we could do with the current data that we have. And and you might disagree, and I think that's that's fair. But um, you know, we're replicating the Schoenfeld study now. And and my goal, and it's gonna be hard, it's it's these studies are not easy to do. My goal is to double the sample size. So I want 20 to 25 people per group, but then I want a control group to see how stable is my measurement over you know that eight weeks time. And I think if more labs get motivated to do these things, and you know, it's just, I think it's in a premature state. When you look at the actual amount of studies that are studying these high volumes that people are talking about, there isn't a lot, right? And, um, you know, to, to, to Meadow's original point about the magnitude of the growth, yeah, I, I think that magnitude of growth is is particularly impressive. And, um, you know, I, I was, I think I was talking to Holly last night and I said, it's lightning in a bottle, you know, 0.7 at the, at the mean change. If, if you could capture that twice, if if you could if you could capture that two two times like if 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 point seven is possible over eight weeks does that mean a trained person can grow a centimeter and a half over sixteen weeks right because these aren't newbie gains they should be getting a somewhat I mean I don't think there's a consistent rate of gains I think there's largely a plateau but if you're trained and you get point seven could you do an additional eight weeks and get point seven and um, you know the way my mind works I just picture that. And um, I, this is kind of funny, but I, I use it as an example in class. So if you guys don't mind. Are you going to um, pull out the pastrami? <laughs> not pulling out the bologna. So, uh, Steve, do you guys have Lunchables? Is in, this uh, uh, sexual innuendo? Or, uh... <laughs> no, not that bologna. Um, yeah, oh, we gosh, have Lunchables. Okay, so um, I was trying to find a good illustration for class because, you know, I'm a teacher. And, and I, I don't know if I'm a particularly good teacher, but I, I certainly try. Um, so... <laughs> My idea was I went to Publix and I got a bologna lunchable. And because um, I suspected that one slice of bologna was around what you should expect over um, eight weeks time. So one little slice of bologna is a little over the average change in muscle thickness that I would expect to see over eight weeks, right? It's a little over um, two millimeters or 0.2 centimeters. So three slices would be around 0.6. When you look at that thickness, if you imagine your muscle getting that much thicker in eight weeks, that's that's really impressive. So th that's how my mind works. I picture this, right? I picture my quad is now this much thicker. Now at the group level, if you're 0.7 centimeters thicker, your jeans are tighter. You probably need to buy new pants. But then when I called it lightning in the bottle, if you could do this in eight weeks, if you could replicate it over an additional eight weeks, you're the whole stack of bologna in the Lunchable. Like, like... And I think we would all agree that this might be the growth we'd hope to achieve over a lifetime of training, right? That's that's a very big difference. Um, this difference here, and I'm holding up a on a podcast. This is the end of my career, right? But um, you know, this change here, um, just to give some perspective, um, and I, I pulled up my bodybuilding case study. The difference between my bicep size right now. And Samson Dowda's bicep size 
is a little bit less than this, right? I'm making myself sound like I'm I'm giant, but but that's just because you know, again, in my mind, I I, I picture muscle that way. I picture it in the thickness of of the tissue, right? And um, you know, so again, this paper is meant to give people the ability to more critically think about these things. And it doesn't mean that that's not possible, but it does mean that we should replicate it because I believe there could be swelling, there could be inflammation because we're interpreting these studies under certain premises and assumptions. The assumption is we don't have a lot of swelling because swelling doesn't accumulate across a training study. Well, that's true when you're doing three or four sets per training session. Is it still true when you're doing 12 sets, when you're doing 15 sets, when you're doing 20 sets per training session? Maybe it is. And I then don't know I, can is. I jump in, Sam? I've got a question for you, or maybe um, Josh or Menno can speak to this. Um, when it comes to measuring swelling in this, um, you know, post-training setting, so whether it's 42 hours and 72 hours, um, how much evidence do we have for muscle swelling in volumes greater than, say, 25 or 26 sets per week? Um, maybe you can speak to that. I don't know the answer to this. In fact, Sam and I met, have many discussions about, you know, should we be doing some more research on, you know, these short acute studies? What kind of um, uh, swelling are we seeing? And then does that extrapolate to, you know, the longer term? You know, once we've seen some more of the more, more of those general adaptations take place, um, does it stay? Does it stick around? So maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, I'll I'll jump in here because I think my answer to this. Um, kind of overlaps with another point that I, I think is worth mentioning here. And that's the difference between absolute and relative changes. So the direct answer to your question, Holly, is that there is an absence of evidence in terms of investigating um, bouts of training that are very high volume. And I, I agree. I think that is something that should be done. We don't have the answer to. Um, my reading of the the research we have, I feel pretty good that 72 out like 48 to 72 hours is just that pretty good um i think 96 hours would probably be pretty good um and in some of our research that uh, we will start data collection on soon we plan to do additional measurements uh after the fact as well to see like you know does this hang around for an additional week so i i think that is a great point however we do have research um kind of looking at untrained folks doing a novel stimulus or even trained folks doing a novel stimulus. And that is essentially like an infinite relative increase in terms of the, the training stimulus. And some of those studies lead me to believe, kind of inform that, hey, I think 96 hours is is pretty dang good. 48 to 72 hours is, is pretty good. Um, but it would be helpful to have some additional evidence at these very high volumes. Um, so again, the, the relative change here is important, both in terms of swelling. Um, I also think the relative change when contextualizing the, the results of the Schoenfeld study are also very important as well. Um, so this isn't like all of the exercise science research, but I, and, and this was inspired by Sam's paper. And again, I think that was a huge benefit of the paper in the sense of, hey, it, it gets people like me to look at this deeper and to better contextualize these things and, and talk about them. Um, I basically pulled all of the studies with multiple groups um, with varying levels of training volume, and that measured muscle thickness and used trained uh, trained subjects. Um, I have one, two, three, four, 
five, six, seven, eight studies that kind of met that inclusion criteria. And the average absolute change is basically exactly what uh, Holly and, and Sam said. It was 0.217 centimeters. Um, so yeah, right around that. I think you mentioned 0 0.14, 0 0.2. So yeah, right around that that mark. I don't know how many uh, baloney that is, but uh, right around 0.2 centimeters. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that having done these ultrasound measurements myself and also analyzed them myself, there are multiple steps that can make what one lab does a little bit different to what another lab does, right? In terms of like, you have to actually calibrate on image J, which is a software, um, you know, how many pixels basically makes up a centimeter on the software, right? Um, if you're measuring the quads, right? If you're going from superficial to deep, are you just looking at the vastus lateralis? Or are you looking at an additional muscle as well? So that's why it's important to look at the relative changes because um, if you have a high absolute change, that could just be explained by the fact that you're looking at a, a relatively large chunk of muscle, if you will, between the, the bone or the, the deep aponeurosis and the superficial aponeurosis. Um, so anyway, if we kind of convert that average of 0.217 centimeters into a relative change for all of these effects, um, and to be clear, this isn't just eight effects. This is all the effects um, across those eight studies, which is about 45 effects. Um, so a decent bit of data here. The average percent change um, is also a number I've, I've heard you hear before, Sam. So right on the money, basically 4.96%, which checks out, I think, to, to all of us. Um, and then you look at the, the Schoenfeld outcomes and the Schoenfeld, um, it had four measures of muscle thickness in the highest volume group. It had elbow flexor muscle thickness, elbow extensor muscle thickness, mid thigh muscle thickness, and lateral thigh muscle thickness. Um, so, uh, and those ranged from 5.5% increases to 13.7% increases. And I think the kind of outcomes in question here are the two thigh muscle thickness measurements. And those were 12.5% and 13.7% respectively. Um, and what I'll say is that's not an isolated finding. It is on the higher side. And like Meadow said, there has to be a highest uh, percentage in, in improvement. Um, but there's a study, and I'm probably going to butcher the, the lead author here, Amir Thalingam. I believe that's the German volume study. That's all like 10.7% increase. Um, all three of the groups in the Abe study um, saw increases in the distal anterior thigh muscle thickness, which is a, a pretty similar measurement to the Schoenfeld one, kind of in that 9.7 to 13% to range. Um, and probably what, what I think is most important here is I plotted all of these like 45-ish effects on a histogram. Um, so the the relative or percentage increases in muscle thickness on a histogram. And it looks like a normal distribution. And again, the the Schoenfeld one is, you know, has two of the highest outcomes. So that definitely is interesting. And, and I think that, you know, warrants replication. Absolutely. Um, we're doing a, a volume study in our lab right now and, and have some planned as well. We definitely need more research. But I guess the point here is that these outcomes don't, raise any any red flags necessarily to me it fits kind of within um some of the other studies we have we see a normal distribution in terms of these relative effects when kind of pooling all these volume studies together with relatively similar methodology um and lastly and i think this is important to internalize is that when you have an extreme effect from a extreme intervention that also should cause you to pause and think about why that's the case, because it definitely could be variability, random chance, 
something weird with the methods. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's important for the, and, and this is more so for the listener. I know everyone here is aware of this. It's important to understand just a, a, a tenant of research is randomization. And every single subject that comes into the study has an equal chance of being in the two groups or the three groups or the four groups, right? So theoretically, and, and I don't see why this wouldn't be the case here, every single group has an equal chance of having some weird effect occur that is not due to the intervention itself. And the fact that we saw this extreme effect in the highest volume condition, the highest volume intervention is interesting, right? And then you kind of put all the research together and you say, okay, sometimes we see some nominal, some nominally greater improvements, so slightly greater improvements in the lower volume groups or the moderate volume groups. Okay, there's definitely variability here. Maybe it's due to different muscles, different training statuses, et cetera. Let's put it all together, account for the variability uh, using uh, control groups, which I think is a great point, Sam. Um, and I, I mentioned this to you through through direct message, but um, I, we're gonna we're gonna attempt to kind of contextualize uh, the results of our meta regressions within the average variance you see in a non-training control group, which I think is very important. Um, and that randomization ultimately again, allows all these groups to have the same chance for an outlier or kind of a, a weird outcome like this. Same idea with the A-mode ultrasound. I don't know a ton about A-mode ultrasound. Um, I've never done scans with A-mode or, or analyzed them. Um, but theoretically, in that Brigado study, all of the groups have the same chance of having a weird outcome in terms of analyzing the A-mode ultrasound. And variability should ideally be accounted for within the the statistical analyses themselves. Um, so I just think that's an important to mention is, you know, okay, we see extreme intervention, we see an extreme outcome, um, but that extreme outcome still fits within a normal distribution um, and doesn't, at least from my perspective, doesn't raise any red flags, but definitely warrants replication because, you know, there's always uncertainty and, uh, you know, there's, there's always more questions than answers. So uh, that, that's kind of my perspective on where those results fit into the, the body of research. Um, I enjoyed that, Josh. Um, if I could butt in, the first thing I'll say is with the Brigado, if, if, if AMO's, AMO ultrasound isn't valid, then regardless of its, if it's randomized, I, I, I do not think that data is, is going to tell, tell us anything meaningful. Um, but I, I've been thinking, I've, I've been thinking about this recently, um, you know, cause I've, I've had people comment like, you know, it's, you got to express it as a relative change. And, and they say, you know, as a relative change, um, you know, you should expect a certain percent increase in muscle size. And let's just pretend you always expect an 8% increase in muscle size. And because you're bigger, that change is going to be bigger. This implies that as you grow, you should expect more growth. Right. So as you go from a four centimeter bicep to a five centimeter bicep, and we have expectations of a certain percent increase, I, I think this, and, and, and I'm, I'm really interested to see more about your analysis. But I, it, it, again, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around physiologically, you know, as you grow, right? As you go from a person that's never trained to a person that's really trained to a person that's ultra trained. There should be a plateauing of your muscle growth, and there should be a slowing of your muscle growth to the point where gaining an, an additional baloney, I guess that's our, our new uh, illustration, is going to take a long time, and it may not even be possible. So I, I struggle with the idea that just because a muscle is bigger, it should grow more, um, especially if, if, if it's in the context of, you know, 
someone's growth journey, right? The, the larger my muscles grow, the less likely I am to see a large magnitude of growth. I think that's just a general concept of adaptation, right? If, if, my, if my quads used to be five and now they're six centimeters, I don't now expect to see more magnitude of growth because they're now bigger. I still expect to see a less magnitude of growth because I'm more trained and I'm closer to my genetic ceiling. Um, so I still find it interesting. And, and I think we could probably talk for a few hours just on this idea. But I think there's more to uncover there because there's there's the analytical approach and view of it. But then there's the the physiological, like let, let's, let's unwrap this physiologically and, and think about it. And um, I, I don't necessarily think just because a muscle is bigger that it should grow more. Um, I think it could grow more. And, and I think maybe if you take an untrained group, like untrained individuals, maybe the people with larger muscles have the greater capacity to grow. Maybe they have more muscle fibers, right? Um, but if you're taking trained people, and, and this is another thing that's fascinated me within the literature itself, is in, in my experience, um, and I don't know how many training studies I've done at this point, um, it's quite a few, but when I recruit untrained people, I have a lot more confidence that we're going to get skeletal muscle growth. When I recruit resistance trained individuals, it's obviously much more difficult to, to, to have confidence that you're going to have meaningful growth in your study. And, and I always tell my, the individuals that come in, I say, they say, hey, are we going to grow if we sign up for your study? I say, well, if you can grow, I'm pretty confident that our protocol will help you to grow. Um, I, I don't think everybody, you know, I, one of the first things I tell my class, uh, especially my graduate students um, in strength and conditioning is, you know, a lot of you spend two hours a day in the gym and, and you're just in the maintenance season. I, I, I don't like, if you've been training for 10 years, I don't think you're growing anymore. Right. So when you recruit trained people um, and I'm going to snowball on a completely different idea because I think it's interesting and I hope you guys think it's interesting. Um, when you recruit trained people and, and this is this is funny when you read a study and train people, they grow. Why do they always grow? Um, I think this represents a phenomenon that's not repeatable. And, and, I, and I don't think you could extrapolate it much beyond the study intervention. So if I recruit a bunch of trained people and I blast their biceps, their biceps will grow, let's say, somewhere around 0.2, right? But if I train them for another eight weeks, I don't think they're going to grow 0.2 again. And if I train them for another eight weeks, I don't think they're going to grow for another 0.2. That would be an impossibility right? Growth is not linear, and, 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 and that would be amazing gains. So a, a research study is a snapshot that's a really interesting thing because people, I, I think, and this is just a hypothesis, I think it represents a hyper-focused moment, right? So Josh, if, if you come in and you're signing up for my bicep study and you're just focusing a little bit more um, intentionally than you normally are in your training, I think Let's say your biceps, we'll give you a good one here, five centimeters, right? But your bicep used to be four, now it's five. At the end of my study, it's 5.2, right? I think you can maintain that 5.2, but I think it's going to be too difficult. You're going to go back to your normal training. Your bicep's going to return to five. You're still training. You're training, you know, three times a week, twice a week on your biceps, uh, 52 sets, depending on who you ask, Right. And your your muscle kind of returns to where it was. It's a grown muscle, right? It's it's hypertrophied and it's close to its limit. You could sign up for my study again and you do my eight-week study 
we're hyper-focused, we're really getting a good stimulus, and you go back to 5.2. So I this is just my own crazy thoughts. I think a lot of the resistance training literature is capturing this little fluctuation that you can squeeze out of your muscles temporarily. But I don't I think we have to be careful about extrapolating it because again, extrapolate any study and replicate that growth just three times. And it's too much growth to, to be re realistic. Um, anybody have thoughts on that one? So that's that's an idea I haven't published yet, but I, I think it's a pretty fascinating one that I think about quite a bit. I'd love to speak to that just from the practical sense. And I'm sure you guys have done this yourselves in your own training. But I think, you know, you make a really good point about this idea of like focused um, periods of training. And, you know, we, we've heard about it um, on previous podcast episodes that Steve's had with other guests on where, you know, these people are coming into the, the lab setting and they're getting one-on-one -on -one coaching support, uh, encouragement on every single rep. And they're being told to get as close to failure or if not to failure, um, and they're getting really great outcomes and, you know, you can apply that outside of the gym. And I think there are a lot of people that do a really good job at that. Um, some people are more focused than others. And again, I, th I think, um, I think of this in the context of my own training. Um, I've definitely been able to apply that level of focus for, you know, short periods of time. And I would say, you know, I might do like two, six week training blocks, two mesocycles, and I'm able to exude that kind of effort at those kinds of higher training volumes. And I might get some really good outcomes, but very shortly after that, I am really starting to hit the fatigue um, physically and mentally. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily feasible for us to, let's say these kinds of growth outcomes are realistic. Maybe we get a few more, you know, larger study sample sizes coming through that do start to show that, you know, with greater training volumes, we can expect to observe, you know, 0.6 to 0.7 centimeters of growth over this short eight to 12 week time span. But how long are you able to sustain that? And what happens when you do take the deload or you do back off on your training volumes and you go from the 35 or 30 sets per muscle group per week um, back down to something that's just, I can breathe now. I've got a career. I have a life. I can't keep pushing at that magnitude. So I think that's a really interesting point that you make, Sam, about, you know, potentially having these focused periods where you can get that extra growth, but maybe it just looks like a bit of an, a roller coaster and what we're seeing or capturing in the literature are just the, the peaks of, you know, these training cycles. So I'd really love to see, you know, what this actually looks like in the real life setting, maybe over like a 12 month um, time span. But Menno, um, Josh, I'd, I'd love to hear from you guys too. Yeah, I have a number of um, points about that. As a researcher who also funds a lot of the research, I'm acutely aware of the difference between labs. And I think some of that might also explain the results of Schoenfeld. I like working with Brad Schoenfeld and Mike Roberts, for example, because I know that their labs have relatively dedicated individuals that sign up for their studies and they push them really hard. So they have qualified coaches and also they, they motivate them, like it's someone shouting your ear while you're lifting. So when you combine better coaching, which is doc, which has been documented multiple studies to increase gains, plus more motivated subjects, which of course is going to increase gains, plus um, generally good study design and the like, you, you also have labs that in general get higher outcomes than other labs. And if we compare that, for example, with the, the ALBA study, um, oh yeah, training experience is another big factor. Like, we are in a very unfortunate spot with exercise science that we want to do studies on 
not untrained individuals, because then the results might not apply to trained individuals. But we also don't want to do studies on elite lifters so much because they're probably not going to grow. And it is true that in many studies, people do not grow, actually. There's the Hoffman study. There's the Warehouse study, I think. Uh, and I think there's also a well-documented effect of publication bias that studies that do find effects are more likely to get published than studies that are just like, oh, yeah, we tried this. And uh, turns out there was no difference at all. So I don't know. Uh, and that might, in, in this case, actually be somewhat of a good thing. Usually it's negative. But otherwise, we might also be flooded in exercise science with no findings. Might be good, though, because in a meta-analysis, you should be able to control for that. But um, in the Aube study, for example, the subjects were squatting over two plates, on or not two plates, uh, over twice body weight on average. That's uh, significantly more trained than in many of the other studies. So it makes sense that they find lower outcomes than in the other studies. Um, so that, that's a few factors between labs that can influence results. And I think almost all of these factors favor Schoenfeld's lab. Um, swelling is, is definitely another um, factor. Uh, before I get into this, there's, I think, another difference uh, that's worth going into. There's a difference between the validity of the, the absolute results. Like I said earlier, with effect sizes, you cannot look at a single study and get much from that. But even with A-mode ultrasound or a very um, surprising, almost incredible effect sizes, the, the probability of observing these results by chance can still be quite low. So even if you use A-mode ultrasound instead of B or MRI, the results, I think, are still at least somewhat valid, less valid than MRI, but still somewhat valid because it's unlikely that just because of the error of A-mode ultrasound, you would get that lower, medium, high exactly in that order where you get a dose-response uh, curve, even if, again, not all of these differences are uh, significant between groups. So I think these studies, they still add value, just less value than a better controlled study. Uh, I agree, by the way, about, uh, Sam, what you said about a really good big study actually having even more weight than a meta. Uh, and if you're going to uh, run that study, uh, it would be amazing. For, for most labs, it's just not doable to get that many trained individuals. Uh, so I would be happy to collaborate with you and help you fund it as well, because I know how mm -hmm. difficult it is to uh, to do that. And if you also want a control group, um, yeah, you're asking for a lot. And again, I think it would be amazing if we uh, or you can make that work. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Um, last point, swelling. Swelling is... Definitely, in fact, I think in large part, I agree with uh, Josh's points there. Most studies wait 48 to 72 hours. That's probably a little bit too short, especially the ANUS study, because they were increasing the volume. But in the studies that were not increasing the volume and at least eight weeks of duration, like Redeli, Schoenfeld, um, Brigato, I think it's less of an issue because we have very well-documented the fact that the, the swelling and the muscle damage and the soreness dramatically decreases from the first time you have the stimulus to repeated repeated stimulus in a habitually, or it becomes an habitual study, habitual stimulus in trained individuals. So A, trained individuals, and B, doing a workout that they are familiar with that they've done many times before. Then you get a whole lot less swelling than if you have an untrained individual that for the first time in his or her life is subjected to eccentric exercise, and then they have like a week of swelling, right? So based on, uh, I wrote a post relatively, no, maybe a year ago now on uh, on Instagram, where I kind of reviewed this literature and also concluded kind of the same as Josh, that 42 to 72 is quite good. Uh, it's to the extent that I would be, I would find it unlikely that all of the difference between groups would be explained by swelling, but it's probably still a confounder. And indeed, I would like 
72 to 96, probably 96 hours would be much nicer for these studies, especially in like the NS uh, study where you're increasing the volume because then every um, every time it's kind of a new stimulus for people and the total volume is quite ridiculous. We have some studies, mostly in untrained individuals, but some in trained individuals where they have like 10 sets for one muscle group. And then you typically see in trained individuals that it's not too bad. There are actually, I think, two studies where they find that when it's an habitual stimulus, up to 10 sets per workout doesn't induce uh, significant swelling anymore after 48 hours. Now, these studies have higher volumes. So, and of course, different exercises can do different amounts of muscle damage. So I, I definitely agree. It's a confounder. I think studies should extend the duration more to the 96 hour mark, but based on the current evidence, uh, I would find it very unlikely that we happen to get that exact trend uh, just from uh, swelling. Yeah. To to kind of second that, I think, again, from my reading of the research, swelling is unlikely to kind of compound throughout a training study or accumulate throughout a training study. Um, I would say like the worst case scenario, if you will, in terms of swelling would be um, an increase that stays the same throughout the training study um, or probably what's more likely is it increases at when it's a novel stimulus and then it drops off. And that's why I agree with, um, I think kind of a consensus here that it would be, I think it would be smart to bump those ultrasound uh, exams back a little bit. Now there are logistical limitations to that, right? Now you need subjects maybe coming in the next week, right? And and Sam, I, you might be nodding your head there because uh, I know you're, you're probably aware of those uh, kind of logistical limitations. Um, but yeah, my general stance is I think the dose response we do see could be confounded by swelling, but I would be very, very surprised if it uh, explained the dose response to a large degree. Um, it could it could kind of overstate the dose response. I'm definitely open to that. Um, I don't think we have the evidence to say either way. But again, from my um, kind of from extrapolating from what we do have, uh, my opinion is that it's unlikely to explain it to a large extent. Um, and that's important practically to Holly and Sam's points, because ultimately we are, this whole discussion is is sort of around maximizing gains. And there's a big difference between some or meaningful gains and optimal gains, right? And especially when you put that within the context of, like Holly said, uh, a full-time job or um, let alone training your entire body, right? Where, which wasn't the case in the NS study, or at least like the, the posterior chain muscles were at a, a lower training dose. Um, a couple other points that uh, are slightly related, and this was a little bit ago, but to follow up on your point, Sam, about um, you wouldn't expect a, a larger muscle to see a greater relative increase in terms of folks that are more, more advanced. I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think that is, I think you might've been the, the lead author on a paper is like skeletal muscle growth to infinity and beyond, or at least a, a co-author perhaps. Yeah. Lead author. I think, um, that's a fantastic co paper. Co-author. Co Brittany counts was the um, lead author on that paper. She did a great job. Yeah. Like I, I absolutely agree. I would, I would not expect a more trained individual to see a, a greater relative gain. Um, more so what I'm getting at is just when you have a larger, um, absolute muscle, if you will, or, you know, the. Uh, if you're looking at two quad muscles versus one quad muscle, right? Um, not necessarily the the advancement of the 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 training cohort. Um, so that, that's kind of a, a side note. 
Um, but I do think it's important to take a step back and um, I acknowledge and agree with uh, a lot of the points made regarding the limitations of research in general and short-term training studies. But I do think it's important for the listener to recognize that this is a problem with all training studies and not just the volume research. Um, I don't, I like, okay, the, the swelling stuff might apply disproportionately to the volume research, but it also applies to proximity to failure research, perhaps blood flow restriction training or different rep ranges. And then the limitations in terms of, okay, these trained people see meaningful growth that we know is just not sustainable. Again, that is a limitation of exercise science training studies in general. And the way that I think about it is, you know, that applies to both groups, kind of getting back to the randomization and the equal likelihood of, of random um, kind of false positives to pop up. So as a practitioner, I'm going to hedge my bets to these training studies, even though they're limited, to the ones that show larger effects, even if it's not unanimous. But again, putting that within context of, again, training the entire body, uh, fitting within the individual schedule, all those kind of practical constraints. Um, and then on that point of, you know, we see trained people see growth that is arguably unsustainable. I almost take the opposite perspective um, in the sense that I'm interested in how we can leverage that phenomenon in practice as opposed to uh, why perhaps we should put less weight in the studies in general. And my, as I mentioned, the, the topic I'm interested in for my PhD is skeletal muscle resensitization, which kind of circles around this specialization type of approach. Um, now we don't have much, arguably no evidence in this area, but that's part of the reason I'm interested in this area is because, okay, we see, uh, you know, some of these more extreme effects in the more extreme volume studies, but we also know that's probably not sustainable, especially if um, training all muscle groups. So what if we take sort of a, a volume cycling approach um, and perhaps you return to baseline um, after that specialization approach, I'm, I'm definitely open to that possibility but I kind of doubt it. Um, it's not like in the uh, detraining studies where you basically have a higher volume period followed by a reduced volume period. It's not like you see a, a drop off in muscle size in many of those studies. Um, I think you would probably be able to maintain it. Now, perhaps swelling is contributing a bit and perhaps it does attenuate when that muscle group is no longer kind of the, the focus. Um, but I would expect from the the detraining research or probably more accurately, the reduced training volume research or the maintenance volume research, I would expect that to be uh, something that get, can be sustained. Um, and then the last point I'll say is, yeah, like we definitely see some well-trained people in our lab grow a lot, like even visually so. You're like, oh my gosh, those are the, the same quads as the they were eight weeks ago, you look like a, a totally different person. You know, we've had people come in that can squat 500 plus, And by the end of the study, again, their quads look visually different. Who's to say why that's the case? There's a lot of possibilities. We also see people that uh, can squat 500 plus and they get weaker and they don't grow, right? Um, and I'm, you know, a, a lot of people on the internet would kind of say like, hey, we want as high of training status as possible. But to your point, Sam, um, Sometimes I question that, right? Because if you don't see any growth at all, it's hard to find any differences between the interventions. So it's kind of a, a balancing act there for sure. Um, but yeah, lot, lots of unknowns. And ultimately, I, I, I guess the main point here is 
uh, the limitations of exercise science training studies, a lot of them apply to all studies. And secondly, um, perhaps some of the limitations um, can be leveraged in practice, i.e. perhaps like a sort of a specialization approach. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, I think that's um, that's very fair. I don't know if I was just going to... Sam, did you have a point you wanted to make? Sorry. Yeah, I, um, Go for it. I guess I was going to start the training status one. I, I, I think one of the um, things that's important to research and one of the things that my lab does is when we recruit people, we want to call them trained. Um, if we're doing a bicep curl study, you have to be training your biceps and doing bicep curls. Because if this movement's new to you, I expect novel adaptation. Um, if we're doing a knee extension study and it's required for you to have trained quads, I want you performing knee extension inside. Like so, so we've made our criteria as specific as we can make them to ensure. Like I'm mostly interested in muscle growth, right? Which is is going to be different than strength adaptations. You, you need the specificity of the movement for strength as well. Um, but I, I I generally try to make our studies a bit more specific to tease out that training status. Um, and then when you do, yeah, you're still going to see people that respond remarkably. And then when you, when, when that happens, you know, there's, okay, how, how in the world did this just happen? Right. How did a person grow this much? This is unusual. They might just be gifted. Right. I think Holly's gifted. She, she grows like crazy, um, in her training protocols and I'm doing the same thing and I'm looking the same. Um, but I, so, so I think training status, I, I've written a paper on this, but I, I, I think making like resistance, like a statement of resistance training for at least six months is so vague. Like, what are you doing? Um, you know, we did a, a, so we conducted a year long study. It's not published yet. We have about 30 people we tracked across an entire year. Um, and we just, we just tracked their biceps and they had to be training their biceps before signing up. They had to be doing bicep curls before they signed up. And then we tracked their growth across the year and they had to be doing at least three sets, at least twice a week. So they had to be stimulating the biceps um, and we collected training logs and over an entire year at the, the, the mean change in, in, in muscle thickness was not significant. There was no growth. Now our average training year was a training age was about eight years. So they were pretty trained people. Um, but we had people in there with one, two, three, four years. So it was, it was, there was a lot of variability, but when we looked at the data and you got to be careful interpreting individual data, our control group's pretty small. Um, but I think, and this is where my hypothesis on eight week study represents a limited phenomena. You'll see little peaks along the way. 
right? But across the year, there's moments where you measure them and it's going to look like they grew. Uh, measure them again, they look like, ah, oh, they're back down. So I think, I think once you're grown, I think you fluctuate around. It's like peaking for a, a bodybuilding show, perhaps, right? You, you're, you're trying to push as hard as you can, make your muscles as large as they can be. But it's, 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 I don't think it's a sustainable thing necessarily. 98% of it can be sustained. It's that extra bit, the bit that I believe we're capturing in studies. Um, and, and part of the reason I thought that is, is our year-long training study, which I hope we we get out soon. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about, what did I write here? I can't read that at all. Um, something bias. Maybe it'll come back to me. Um, but uh, I don't know what that was. With, with the swelling, <laughs> we, we, you guys covered a lot of different things. Um, but I, I'll tell you, the reason that I'm putting the suggestion of swelling out there, um, you know, I contributed to the literature suggesting that swelling doesn't accumulate across a training week. Um, in 2016, European Journal of Applied Physiology, we tried to make swelling accumulate, and it does not accumulate across a training week. Um, there's an initial swelling, and there's maybe a baseline shift in the muscle size, but it's not prolonged, and it doesn't accumulate. And that's in untrained people doing um, four sets of bicep curls three times a week. Um, and, and then you have the Philippe de Moss paper that looked at echo intensity as an indicator of, of, of swelling. And I have my issues with echo intensity with, you know, for those that are listening and don't know echo, echo intensity, you basically take an ultrasound image, and you look at the color in the ultrasound image. So you look for darkness and lightness in the image, and it's supposed to tell you about the fluid. Well, what we found is when you tilt the ultrasound probe just a little bit, you get a drastic change in echo intensity, no change in muscle thickness. So echo intensity may not be the best measure. Um, but in that study, they suggested that the first three weeks, echo intensity is going crazy, and thereafter, it seems to calm down. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that's that could be leveraged in the NS study to suggest that since they increased volume, maybe they reintroduced this, this swelling. I don't know that I believe that. It, it's it's possible. But the reason I brought up swelling is to me, it's the best explanation, right? So, and again, this is just my perspective. When I see extraordinary growth, growth that I can't wrap my head around, growth that I know cannot happen twice, lightning in a bottle, um, my mind thinks about it and I go, okay, do I think, do I think this difference between groups could, could lead to this, this difference in muscle growth? I don't think so. Um, the next best thing is swelling. So it's not because I think there's great evidence for swelling. We don't have that evidence. We don't know, but I think swelling is a better explanation than some of these muscle growths being possible. And that's that's both from a magnitude of muscle change perspective, but it's also from a physiological perspective. You know, the fact that I don't think, um, you know, the, the final volume, and again, I'm using the NS study to demonstrate my thinking, and this thinking is applied to how I read all studies. Um, but with the NS study, right, 22 sets split between two sessions, means four sets of squats, four sets of leg press, and three sets of knee extension. Um, I I don't know that five is better than four, that six is better than four, right? So if physiologically, I don't think adding sets to something that's already sufficient would cause growth, then the next best explanation to a, you know, and it's not even significant, right? It's it's nearing, and, and we, we kind of ran with it because 
I think we have this pre-existing knowledge that, okay, volume should do this. Um, but since I can't wrap my head around a situation where we're not just pouring too much water in a cup that can't hold all of it, and, and, and magically it leads to more growth, right? So my best rationale in that situation is, I think it's probably swelling, because physiologically, I don't think you're getting greater muscle protein synthesis from doing in a, what I think is kind of an obnoxious amount of volume. I think it's interesting that they looked at it. I think it's really cool that they did it, right? But I'm not compelled to think that that's an inherently more anabolic protocol, at least the way the volume was distributed. If they gave an extra day and they gave variety of exercise, then I think it could be a little bit more interesting for me because I think if you disperse your volume amongst different movements, which hit your fibers in different ways, I think maybe there's a greater likelihood of, of getting maybe more growth, right? That's why people do flat bench. They have incline, they have decline, they have flies, right? We have different movements that work the same muscle group, but we're not, you do three movements for chest. You don't do the same movement and put all your sets on that same movement because we assume that different exercises are stressing our fibers in a different way that's going to lead to some different type of growth with obviously some redundancies. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to mention that the, the swelling to me is just the best explanation in some of these circumstances. And it's not that I think there's great evidence for swelling, but I think as an explanation, it's it's the one that makes the most sense to me because the other explanation, if it's if I don't think that growth is possible, then I I think it's swelling. If it's not swelling, it could be, okay, were they unblinded? Was there some inherent bias in, in taking the measurement that was unintentional, but it can happen, um, especially if you think, oh, I think this group should be better, right? Um, and we should be blinded to our measurements and that shouldn't happen, but that's why I prefer to think it's swelling because I don't think it's growth. And the last thing, I, I just want to mention this because Menno um, talked about Brad's group and I, I think they do great work and I think they've had a lot of great people come through that lab. Uh, this is just more of a personal thing because when people disagree with me, since they don't know me and I'm not on social, I mean, I'm on social media, but I, I, I'm not posting my physique updates, right? So sometimes I get portrayed as a white coat scientist or, you know, my mentor, Jeremy Lenicky. I remember when people would disagree with him instead of, instead of debating the science, they would just post a picture of his haircut and I make fun of his haircut. So I can say that, um, you know, he's a powerlifter and he's a bodybuilder. And I think he would admit he was average at both of those things, maybe um, below average as a bodybuilder, but he was, he's very strong. Um, and, you know, just because you picture someone as a white coat scientist doesn't mean they are. I, I think most people that are studying muscle growth were obsessed with training just like I am, right? So, um, you know, I, I heard a podcast, it was during my PhD, um, and a pretty well-known person, he was making fun of one of our papers. And he goes, ah, I'm pretty sure these guys have never lifted a weight in their lives. I was like, well, you have no idea what we do, right? We're just not public figures. So it's it's not your knowledge to what I do. Um, you know, I, I so I just think, you know, sometimes different labs, just because we're not public figures or perceived a certain way. Um, but, you know, when I go to academic conference and I, I get together with people that do resistance training research, they typically are lifting enthusiasts. They love lifting. They love talking about it. Um, and, and so I, I think, and they know how to train hard. Um, and I think sometimes that perception gets out there, but 
every single lab I've worked in and been in has people that just love trading and are, are pretty decent at it. So. I, uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, we were talking a bit about study design and one way to contextualize the findings is using a, a non-training control. Um, another way to do that is to do a crossover study. Um, so right now we're, we're in progress of a within subjects crossover study. This is uh, Zach Robinson, who, who I know you know, Steve, um, his dissertation research. The reason I bring that up is it's uh, been, we're, we're at the tail end of it, but the amount of work that goes into a, a crossover study with a decent sample size is a lot. And uh, just speaking for uh, my lab mates, right? The only, the only reason people are in there pushing these subjects hard every day and our subjects training with us for almost a year is because everyone in there loves lifting. And again, that's just speaking for, for our lab. Um, I know that's the case in, in almost every other lab out there. Um, so, so very much agree with that, uh, with that sentiment there. W one thing that I think is interesting on the swelling front, I think we're, we're kind of all on the same page that there's an absence of evidence here. Um, one thing is like to kind of hypothesize is what do we expect the kind of dose response of swelling to be? Um, because I think it would have to be it, it would have to be linear or, or almost exponential to explain most of the findings. Um, this is acute swelling, but there's a study from uh, Marchetti. I think it's from last year or the year before. Um, they did. They looked at uh, four to 16 sets of acute, I think it was bicep curls. And the acute swelling measured from ultrasound was almost the exact same. So kind of indicating that, um, at least in this design, that the acute swelling did not seem to be impacted by the amount of volume. Now the mechanisms for chronic swelling in the following days or perhaps even weeks is probably a different mechanism. Um, but it, it, perhaps it's something and the, the fluid would have to get there in the first place. Um, so I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but I, I do think when thinking about the volume research in the absence of a ton of swelling research, um, it might be helpful for the, the listener to consider what the dose response relationship is between additional sets and swelling. I would suspect it's diminishing returns. Um, and thus that kind of informs my position that, um, you know, the, the additional sets are leading to additional hypertrophy. It could be some additional swelling, but it's unlikely to explain a large chunk of it. So I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that, Sam, and, and kind of, uh, given we have an absence of evidence. Yeah, um, I, I do think we just currently don't have the evidence. I I think prolonged swelling is probably going to be different than acute swelling. So I, like, you know, if, if we ran two protocols and looked at the immediate response, I don't know that I expect large differences. Um, the craziest swelling I've ever seen post-exercise is from my dissertation. And it was going with very low load training, but we did 90 reps per set with 15% of 1RM that blew up the muscle like you wouldn't believe. And um, it was there for a while. In fact, the trademark, the hallmark of knowing that people signed up for my study is they walked around like their arm was in a sling because they couldn't extend their arms all the way. Um, so uh, with like extreme protocols, we've seen extreme swelling. Um, but that was a low load, 90 reps per 
that for four sets. So that's three minutes of continuous exercise, four times. That's 12 minutes of exercise. Um, that did something I had never seen before. So again, you know, have we looked at at these 52 sets? You know, what would the the 45 sets do? I don't know. And I also, like you mentioned, I think they're different things, perhaps. You know, there's neutrophil infiltration into the muscle cell 24 to 48 hours after. So what is that doing? And, and is that leading to a, a a delayed swelling that we need to try to account for with these, these higher volumes? I don't know. Um, but I will say that our replication study, we have designed in it, we're doing post-testing the way that it was done. And then three to five days later, we're doing post-testing a second time. It's a pain in the butt. And it means we go on vacation a little bit later, even though our semester's over. But it's important because, you know, we raise this criticism. So we want to make it better by trying to account for it. Is it perfect? No. Um, but, it you know, what if we do see like the same changes, but then those changes are just a little bit less, you know, after they come back three days later? Um, so, you know, we're doing what we can through study design. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm really interested. To, unfortunately, it's going to be a while because... Um, I have a very tiny lab space and recruiting people is tough, um, but the study's going really well and I'm, I, I can't wait for, you know, us to get this data. Um, but I, I don't want my lab to be the last lab to do this. I want other labs to begin investigating these things as well. Um, you know, I think, I think too often, you know, just the certain ideas are only pursued by the same group and we all, all have our different, you know, um, methodologies. We have our different biases. We and, and and I think, I think we get a better idea with diversity of lab groups pursuing these things. Um, but uh, yeah, with the swelling, I I don't know is the the short answer. But I've seen extreme swelling as well, um, just not in the context of high load training. So I'm not sure. Yeah, that's fair. I think this this discussion has been really good. Uh, I don't, I'm trying to think of a way of trying to summarize it to some extent, uh, or at least I'm going to just add some thoughts here and see if there's anything that people want to follow up on. It's kind of coming to that number four point within your paper is like, is this muscle growth possible and the question of swelling? And obviously, I think there are some reasons why people might grow more than maybe we would expect because it's like potentially a specialization, potentially the lab effect, having people kind of shouting at you, like having a training partner almost. Uh, that can lead to better results. Can it lead to this level of results? That's something that we remain skeptical about, which is is fair. And I think everyone here is under the impression that swelling could have played a role. I think maybe there's different opinions on how much of a role it could have played. Uh, I know with the Enos et al. study, they were kind of adding, uh, well, in that last week, it would have been either six additional sets that they had the week before at the 52 or they're at 42 and they had four. So that kind of had that increasing set volume. Whereas with Brad's, they were kind of that static set volume that was just high for the extended period of time, I believe. Whereas Enos was kind of unique in terms of adding those sets. So it's a little bit different in terms of the impact of swelling, maybe on Brad's versus on the, the kind of Enos paper there. I don't know if that brings about any thoughts, but uh, it's, it's whether or not I think trying to pass does that relationship still hold are those results still valuable to add to the body of evidence of there's a dose response relationship there it's just not as because the, the swelling is leading to like a, an additional look upon it and is that swelling 
uh, the same for maybe the 42 sets versus the 52 or is the 52 getting that much more swelling and that's where that growth is coming from I don't think we have an answer to it but uh, I think it's just where uh, everyone's remaining skeptical I don't know if if you remove these papers from kind of the body of literature where does th that leave us does it leave us back at this, this general recommendation we see at 12 to 20 sets still. Uh, I don't know if anyone has any thoughts of my general ramble of just listening to you guys go back and forth, which has been brilliant, by the way. I think, again, I want to jump in just from the practical perspective and um, say, you know, I don't think that we have all of the answers just yet, um, but we can certainly make inferences from what we do know. And I think um, one of the things that I would love to see in terms of, you know, future study design is perhaps some uh, implementation of a more practical program that is being um, executed in real life settings. So, you know, I think about the types of training that we are prescribing with our, our clients, and it's typically anywhere from as little as three days through to five or six for some of our more advanced um, and, you know, invested lifters. Uh, and if we think back to all of the studies that we've discussed today, most of these are, you know, either uh, training frequencies of two days or three days. So, I mean, even that is very different from the way that we might practically recommend or prescribe a training program, let alone how we then distribute those training volumes. So I would even argue that the way that we're doing things practically um, might actually offer us better opportunities to maybe see some of those, you know, extraordinary findings, um, at least in my experiences from the growth I've uh, experienced personally. And then I've also seen uh, with clients who are getting, you know, six monthly DEXA scans, now arguably not as good as, you know, MRI, CT or uh, ultrasound, that's for sure. But, you know, I have seen some of these types of results, you know, anecdotally through, through personal experience. So I hope if anything, it kind of leads us to design better studies, which I think all of us would agree with, um, that are more realistic uh, for how a practitioner would write. Um, and then maybe control for, you know, some of the swelling, um, you know, arguments and conversations that we're at least having today. So um, I think the bigger thing that I, I kind of want to see if, you know, any of the guys want to share with, with the listener is what does this mean when it comes to actually prescribing training program? We're all sitting here, we're listening, we all train, the people listening train. Um, how does what we've talked about today uh, impact what we do, um, you know, in the gym? So, I mean, I'd love to go through each of the guys and I can certainly talk to it myself okay, what kind of training volumes per week do we each recommend and kind of tend to agree on? How many sets per muscle group um, per week? And then within the session, are we, you know, in agreements upon or is there some differences there? Um, what kind of growth outcomes, you know, as a percentage, are we talking 4%? Are we talking 8% over an 8 to 12-week study intervention? And are there some differences for beginners versus, you know, steady-stained um, advanced lifters? So maybe we can go through each of us and maybe talk to, like, what would you do uh, when it comes to practically prescribing training and what do we expect to see, um, I think, keeping in the context of today's discussion, in resistance-trained individuals when it comes to absolute or relative changes in muscle growth. I like that. I was going to suggest the exact same thing because I know that all the listeners at this point are shouting like you talked for two hours and the yeah, answer is we don't know. Like, Tell us what we need. <laughs> I want my money back. Practical application. Let's go. Menno, you can stop. Go for it. All right. Sure. Um, I think I was at the question I was going to phrase it as, as if you would have to give like a 95% confidence interval of where the growth would lie um, for trained individuals that want to absolutely maximize muscle growth. 
or maybe put otherwise, like what do more practically, where as a practitioner or for yourself, do you mostly put your volume? For me, I've basically given the same answer for the last uh, five years or so. Maybe I'm erring to the side of slightly higher, but I think the practical limitations make it um, make these volumes simply prohibitive. It's 10 to 30 sets per muscle group per week, and then with preferably with a high frequency approach. Again, the strained individuals that are looking to maximize hypertrophy, I think you're you're in that range. It's a big range, I know. I know people want like 17 is the magic answer, but it it's. I think the next step for research is going to be first figuring out really where is the average, but also how does this vary when you're bulking versus when you're cutting? How does this vary when uh, you're sleep deprived and you have kids and your full-time job uh, versus when you are a student and you have nothing else or you're a professional athlete and literally all you have to focus on in life is getting these gains, right? So I think there's it's a big range for a reason, uh, but I would put it at like 10 to 30 and I'm actually quite open to higher volumes in some cases being beneficial. We've seen it now in multiple studies. Uh, I think actually as a final point I would give, because we've seen it in like five studies, and I know that meta-analysis kind of balance it out after 20 to 30 sets, so that's why I'm capping it at 30. I think actually we are all biased against higher volumes. We simply don't want to believe that these volumes can be productive. I think we all have that. I, I have it too. And I think that we see that on social media too, in almost everyone, nobody wants to wants to find out that 50 is the magic answer because it, it's just a whole lot of time. And maybe it is true, like we, we see it in a couple of studies. Uh, it doesn't seem to practically be the case. It's, it's a hell of a workout. It's going to get you injured. It sucks. But maybe it is simply the truth. And if you look at professional athletes, Olympic gymnasts, TIE fighters, they think if you say, whoa, that's two hours per day, they're like, that's half my day. Right, they they do four hours a day, so in that sense, maybe we are all just biased, and we're actually going to find out that it's higher. But yeah, very short answer: ten to thirty sets would be kind of my uh, my my range. Menno, with that, can I ask? Do you have? I'm guessing that's muscle group. Uh, sorry, uh, sets per muscle per week, uh, direct sets. Yeah, that's one question. And then, do you find more people are closer to the ten, or more muscle groups, and people are closer to the ten to the, than to the thirty? How, how does that look for you? Because I have a similar range, but I have a bias. More is like lower towards ten versus more being towards thirty. But it's obviously there's individual differences. But yeah, in the clients, I definitely earn more towards the ten than the thirty, uh, for for numerous reasons, and especially when you are factoring recovery capacity and the like. So. And cutting, especially when cutting, it's definitely going to be closer to 10 than 30. And another point, actually, that uh, Holly mentioned, which is very good, and Sam also, is that I'm a big proponent of high-frequency training, and especially with these high volumes, I think it is much more productive when you do it with a high-frequency approach. And I would, based on James Krieger's meta-analysis, be very hesitant to go with more than six sets per exercise per session. It just becomes hard to fathom how that would indeed stimulate more net muscle protein synthesis uh, and not be not get into junk volume and very poor stimulus to fatigue ratio stuff um, and preferably more like free sets per exercise even um what was the second part of your question oh yeah direct volume yeah so um that would be a whole another discussion but uh, i use uh, actually a fractional approach which i don't necessarily recommend it's complicated but i kind of try to figure out based on the research like, is this 50% stimulus? Is this 80% stimulus? Is this 100% stimulus? And then I weigh every exercise in that way to get to that, you know, 15, say 15 sets per muscle group. Uh, we know, for example, that biceps curls stimulate approximately double the growth of, of dumbbell rows. 
So then double rows in my programs would get a weighing of 50% versus 100% for bicep scrolls. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know if Holly, you want to go to your recommendations? Yeah, sure. I was just going to say, I love that you do the fractional um, percentages. I know we've just gone through an entire exercise library and basically tried to identify, you know, on basic movements like your squat um, or single leg squat movements and, you know, what that actually encompasses. Um, you know, is it a prime, what's the primary muscle group? What's the secondary muscle group? What's the tertiary muscle group? And how much weight do we give to that movement? Um, you know, which of them is actually getting to failure? And then as a percentage, how much of this other muscle group might be getting close to failure? Because, you know, if we think about, you know, working with training intensities, you know, in that rep, you know, RPE seven through to 10, um, you know, your glutes in a squat, for instance, and again, depending on, you know, whether you're a forward squatter, you know, low bar squatter or a high bar squatter, uh, it might switch a little bit more to quad emphasis. So I think it's really important when we're prescribing uh, exercises to make sure that we're giving some thought to, you know, what percentage of that movement is also potentially giving some volume, some sets, uh, you know, to to this other muscle group. So I, I love that you think about that, but it's definitely a more complicated way to prescribe programming. Um, I love that you mentioned the context being really important. I think, you know, how we might prescribe, you know, our, our weekly training set number and then, you know, session set number probably comes back to, you know, is this person in a caloric deficit? Um, you know, how long have they been dieting? What percentage of their total body weight have they lost? Um, because all of those things have implications for, you know, how well they're going to tolerate the training um, versus are they in a muscle building phase, whether they're in a, a, an energy surplus, so they're in an environment that's going to thrive and potentially have greater, you know, hypertrophy outcomes. So I think, you know, the, the volume probably needs to give context to, you know, their individual circumstances and goals. Um, you also mentioned a really great point about, you know, hypertrophy specific programming, Steve, versus some, someone that might also be interested in strength. So, you know, there's many occasions where we're trying to prescribe a program where somebody doesn't want to completely discount strength adaptations. So we've got to be really specific in adding movements that are going to uh, facilitate that goal. But then they also want to know, well, how much can I grow? So then we've got to bring all of these things into the context of the discussion. But to think more broadly, I think for me, I'm probably in a similar rep range um, as what Menno's described per week. Um, I might sit a little bit higher, um, say 15 sets through to 30 sets for a more advanced resistance uh, trainee uh, versus somebody that's brand new to resistance training. I might be prescribing six up to 15 sets as a maximum, you know, when they're first starting and obviously we progressively increase. Um, when it comes to within session um, training volume, I'm a proponent of everything that, you know, uh, Sam has said here and Menno and Josh, I don't know that more than, uh, you know, six sets on an individual muscle group makes a whole lot of sense. I think, you know, once it's done, it's done. Um, but I do think there's a lot of um, value in exercise diversity. So again, thinking about the overlap between different movements, I might prescribe, you know, a squat, a deadlift and a lunge and a hip thrust all in the one program, but I'm prescribing them for different reasons. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to get you to do this movement because for that exercise, I want it to be targeting, you know, your quads. Whereas this is going to be set and prescribed because it's going to hit your glutes a bit more, but it, I can't discount that there might be some overlap. So I think um, there might be cases where you'd count up how many sets, you know, on a particular muscle group within a session, it might be higher than six, could be nine or 12, but the reason it's in the program is actually because it's targeting the other muscle, the antagonist muscle group, for instance. So I think we align in that regard. Um, 
And yeah, I don't know that there's a whole lot more outside of that that I need to add. I'd love to hear from Josh and, and Sam too. Go for yeah, it, Josh. I'll, I'll jump in here and then you could take it home, Sam. Um, first of all, I very much agree with uh, different ways of quantifying set volume or or the stimulus that a, a given muscle um, is is receiving. And that's something we'll we've we've done our best to hopefully provide some insight on that soon. Um, same idea with the per session versus weekly volumes. Um, my uh, my colleague here at uh, FAU, Jake Remmert, um, we've kind of been working side by side on this project along with uh, Zach, who I've mentioned before. Um, and yeah, we're excited to, to hopefully provide insight onto both of those questions because I agree that those are our limitations. Another thing I'll say before I get to the, uh, I guess my, my take homes is that, and, and this does tie into the take homes is that Research is, I, I think we overly uh, focus on ecologically valid research, whereas I think ecologically valid research, so research that um, represents what is done in practice and thus can arguably be applied more directly to practice, I think is excellent. However, there is there are sacrifices to ecologically valid research, um, and that's often at the cost of internal, vo internal validity, which is basically the extent that the outcomes um, that you're you're looking at are due to the differences in intervention right so i've kind of shifted my mindset on that over the last probably five years primarily just as a result of of uh you know getting my hands dirty with research so for example with the um ns study i don't think the goal of that research is to tell you how to train or to say that 52 sets per week is um you know the the magic number or that you should even go up that high at any point, but instead to understand the nature of the relationship. I ultimately think that's the goal of research is to understand the nature of relation, uh, the nature of the relationship between um, a, a, the independent variable and the outcome of interest, right? That's ultimately what it comes down to. Um, and then once you understand that, like Meadow said, maybe there is no point at which you see worse gains, right? Um, maybe there is, maybe there's a clear plateau point that will eventually elucidate. I don't know, right? Um, but the goal is not to tell you how to train, but instead to understand the nature of that relationship. And then the individual can make the determination or the coach can make the determination in terms of that cost benefit analysis, um, given everything going on in that individual's life and just in their training goals in general. So that's why I'm honestly hesitant to give specific numbers. But at the same time, like the scientist in me cringes when I think about giving specific numbers. But I also realize kind of going back to a point I made at the very beginning that that's helpful to the consumer, right? Um, and the way that I think about it is in terms of levels. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of working on this right now. And this very well might change and the numbers will probably shift as well. Um, but I would kind of say there's like a, the, the middle level is where I think most muscles are probably going to see the, the, the best results in a, in a sustainable way for most. Um, and I'd probably put that around six to 20 sets per week per muscle. Um, that's a very wide range, but I think six sets per week can be very, a very robust stimulus. It might be past the point of diminishing returns for some, um, but I could also see the argument that it's closer to 20. Um, and again, kind of that, that cost benefit analysis layering in the uncertainty in the research. Um, and then the, the individual circumstances kind of lead to that determination. And then I would also put a level above that and a level below that. So the level below that would be like, you know, two to six sets, say, or two to five sets. Um, low volumes can still grow muscle, right? 
Um, we were primarily talking about optimization, but maybe it's optimal over the longer term to not always optimize a given muscle or optimize all muscles at the same time. Um, so you can strategically put kind of have this like slow burn level that's, you know, one to five sets per week. Most muscles probably around six to 20 sets. And then the level above that is would be specialization, um, 21 sets or above, right? And again, th these numbers are loose. Um, I don't hold them uh, too, too tightly. Um, but again, they, they give a general idea because there's uncertainty in those higher volumes. Um, I fully expect that kind of our, our credible intervals in our analysis to really open up um, as you get to higher volumes. So kind of what's uh, what's, you know, future research is likely to kind of fall within. So in other words, we just have less confidence at those higher volumes. But um, at the same time, we don't have a clear point at which you definitely see a plateau or definitely see worse gains. So it might be worth exploring for some folks. Um, but I would still characterize that as specialization just because of practical considerations that most have. So in short, kind of that lower tier, that's a slow burn that can be very low volume, still can be effective. Most muscles in a six to 20 range, and then perhaps some or multiple muscles in kind of a, a specialization or a higher volume range um, of north of, of 20 sets per week. Excellent. I think that makes a lot of sense there as well. And uh, Sam, I'll leave it with you. This is probably where they'll tune out. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I agree with what everyone has said. And like, like I said at the beginning, I think we're going to mostly agree with just some different nuanced takes on certain things. Um, when people ask me how much volume they should do, and me and Holly have had this conversation more than once, um, I I think about it first. So I'm going to connect science and application experience because I, I think all three are important. When you walk in the gym, your muscles are in a largely resting state. And your goal is to maximize what you can get out of the exercise that you're doing. So when I think about doing an exercise, I think about, okay, how many sets does it take to maximize the muscle to protein synthetic response I can get from this exercise? Within a single exercise, I think within three or four sets. And the reason I say three or four, you know, Kumar compared three versus six um, in, in looking at the muscle protein synthetic response or markers of, of protein synthesis. And it was similar in younger individuals. We actually have data in older individuals, older individuals just it's like they need more protein than us. They need more volume than us to get the same response. Um, but no one goes in the gym and does one exercise, right? So I, I tend to tell people, I think three to four sets, two are near failure, and probably two to four exercises to get variation in the movement and variety of the movement. So you, you stress the muscle in different ways. Um, James Steele has some interesting work where he looked at exercise variation, right? You don't necessarily need variation variation in the in the volume or intensity, but variation in movement might grow the muscle in a different way. So I think three to four sets per exercise, I, 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 maybe three to four exercises, um, and this is per session. And then you got to zoom out. Okay, this is, this is what Sam's recommending per session. Well, how does frequency matter? Probably two to three days per week, right? Um, and this is where science can't answer it because our studies aren't designed this way. Right. So think about maximizing the anabolic response you can get in a fiber in a movement. And then you have to choose how much variation in movement do you want? You know, we had an interesting conversation, um, me and Holly, about, you know, when you do a, a chest fly, how much of it is the same fibers being stressed and fatigue as in a bench press? Right. There's probably carryover there. So, so maybe it means that when you do your bench press, when you go to chest fly, you probably need less sets 
because a lot of those fibers have already been fatigued and they've already been stimulated for a muscle protein synthetic response. And I tend to believe that maximal exists. Some people disagree with this, right? Some people think doing more is always going to provide more. Um, but if, if you think about adaptation, and I think Hans Selyer very eloquently um, gives us at least a, a rationale here. He called it adaptation energy, right? And he said, we all have some capacity to adapt over a given period of time. Um, and what I think that suggests is, you know, you can only acquire so much muscle tissue over a certain period of time because we're an organism that has to regulate the metabolism. We have to regulate... Um, all sorts of things. So you, you, you're not going to just take the governor off and grow at a crazy rate. You're protecting, like, I think largely we protect ourselves uh, against extreme growth because extreme growth, you know, if all of us on this call could be as big as we wanted to be, um, we would look like super Saiyans, right? Um, but oftentimes what I see online and, you know, what I even hear from some scientific communicators is kind of that mentality that, um, it's like an anime. If you just you just focus and you train hard and and you go crazy, you're going to completely transform. But I think our physiology tells a different story. Um, so, um, three to four sets, two to four exercises, two to three times per week per muscle group. A listener can do the math. I don't have evidence for this, right? There's there's limited evidence, and studies aren't necessarily de designed in this way. But I encourage people when they go into the gym. Um, and when you read and consume research, you can't just look at the weekly sets. You have to look at how it's broken down because muscle adapts and this is physiology. And there are principles in physiology that we can apply and we can use them to better inform our training. Um, and that's why I have large skepticism when people are just shoving all the volume into two sessions per week. I, I just don't think it's a, um, a, a, a good way to, to look at that stuff. Um, but that probably adds up to somewhere in 20 to 30, I think, um, which probably actually puts me on the higher end. But I like the insurance policy. And, you know, when I'm giving advice, wouldn't we all want an insurance policy? If, if, if this movement produces better growth than that movement, I want both movements in my program. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm rambling. So I'll stop here. But I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I, think I like that, the insurance policy. <laughs> yeah, I think that was that was well said, and I think many of you have already stated that there's lots of things that go into training volume, like one set of what, how hard are you training, what exercise are you doing, are you in a cut, are you in a mass, like where are you nutritionally, how stressful is your lifestyle, like all of these things. So at least I'm going to uh, tell anyone here can tell me if I'm wrong. I'm going to assume all of you generally recommend people start at the lower end of things, see how they're responding to that, and then think about okay. If I'm recovering easily, this feels very doable. I'm, my performance is fine. Then progressing higher and see how you do. And uh, I talk about autoregulation all the time. And this is something I find incredibly valuable with clients. It's like looking at their performance across sets within sessions, session RPE. Um, what is that kind of stimulus within an exercise and session like that pump disruption, soreness and fatigue? Are they recovering within and across sessions? And then you get to this. It's going to be somewhere within that range, but you kind of work it out for yourself and this can be something you vary it, like you know you're going through a cut, so you know you're going to need to bring things down. But again, don't just assume it because there's lots of things that go into training volume. So uh, you auto-regulating, I think, within this range that a lot of you have described, anywhere from, I think, as low as six um, or even less if you're looking to put it on 
the back burner up to like this 30 sets is a, a good idea and starting towards the lower end is that that fair to say if everyone's kind of nodding that mm -hmm. start towards the lower end and see how you get on <laughs> now start yeah. on the higher end and if they get wrapped though then you increase the volume <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then on that then is that a fair i know many of you kind of said it like there's a you have a, an opinion that there's a dose response to um training volume and hypertrophy so long as you're recovering so if that person is looking to optimize for muscle growth they do as much as what they can recover from in that kind of moment and build up to it over time you probably find you can recover from more is that where everyone is on this kind of subject matter that like the more you can recover from kind of the more growth you will get i'm i'm a little i think um you definitely don't want to go to the point where uh training is no longer sustainable and you're sacrificing the workload under the curve over a longer period of time and you almost certainly don't want to go to the point where you're definitely seeing regression um on like a, a consistent basis right beyond just like the one-off weird session or weird week or maybe even bad two weeks whatever the case may be um i do i do question the idea of optimizing for progression for hypertrophy specifically um I'll be honest, this is a little bit half-baked, but I would just put a, a little bit of uncertainty over that. Um, the dose response between uh, training volume and hypertrophy seems to be different than the dose response between training volume and strength. Um, now, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, there's also, when you look at some of the analyses in terms of volume load progression throughout a training study, um, which there isn't a lot of that out there, but there is some it's often a little bit less clear cut than you would think. So in other words, if someone's volume load goes up very clearly across the training program, um, that means they were able to progress more, right? They were able to add reps more often or add load more often or both. Um, there seems to be a positive relationship and that seems to um, strengthen in certain scenarios, specifically when it's like a single joint movement um, and there's less of a, a skill component. But I would question optimizing for uh, maximal progression in a given period of time. And the way that I've come to conceptualize it recently is more of a binary yes, no. Am I progressing? Um, and if you are progressing, that means what you're doing is, is permissive. Um, and that's not to say that more or less would be better or worse, uh, but instead it's not necessarily holding you back over the longer term. And hey, maybe doing more at the cost of some progression over that time period could arguably be better. I don't know. Um, I don't have the the data to say that, but um, you know, I, I I think the ability to perform in the gym is different than the ability to maximize the stimulus from that session or from that week or from that training cycle. So you, you're not suggesting people let their performance drop like session right. to session, week to week over time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going. It sounds like you're agreeing with the the relationship between recovery and uh, hypertrophy. Yes, I think I, I love to throw what I'm in. Saying is you don't want to just optimize for that. Um, I okay. view it as more of a a binary. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, I think just again from the practical standpoint, um, uh, in that regard, I think that's when I would start to look at modifying, you know, your programs, um, rep ranges. I know we haven't really talked a whole lot about um, rep ranges at all, moving from strength uh, into the hypertrophy space. But I know at least a lot of experiences that I've had personally, and then uh, anecdotally through clients, is that um, you know you're, when you're working in your lower uh, rep ranges, focusing on strength, that tends to be a lot more taxing on the body. And I know um, for the the women that I'm working with and I would say you know on average I'm 35 plus um you know we're we're steering a little bit away from that type of training just in that it does produce a lot of discomfort a lot of pain uh, and it is I guess more people are more prone to injury you know when they're lifting at such heavy loads so I think the way that I have kind of changed my approach over the years is whilst I love and I think there's a lot of value to strength um, training specifically and I think it really helps people wager what they should be doing for their hypertrophy training to be honest um it is also really really tough on the body so I'm moving rep ranges, you know, to, you know, 12 plus, uh, especially for some of my older people. And, you know, we talked about, you know, there's some subtle differences in younger people versus older people. So, you know, those numbers are kind of moving around um, all the time. So I think just to your point, um, uh, Josh, when you were mentioning, um, you know, you want to make sure that you're not um, under recovery and you're seeing performance decrements, that could certainly be one of the things that you could modify um, to prevent um, chronic pain and discomfort. I know I certainly experienced that a lot when I was heavy lifting. But one of the other things I think that I would love for you guys to collectively share, because I know it's asked of me all the time, and I think my perspective might be a little bit different, and that is just the, um, uh, I guess, percentage increase in regional muscle growth uh, within a given muscle. So, I mean, I've certainly read anywhere in the realm of, say, 4 to 8% um, of an increase. I know there's a lot of studies that talk about absolutes where, you know, we might see this amount of lean tissue or fat-free mass accrue through various um, measuring tools. But as a percentage in regional muscle growth, uh, what would be your um, – uh, take on that so that people have a bit of a, a gauge when they start their building a journey, if they're going to do, you know, this focused exerted period for 12 weeks, for instance, two, six week training blocks, um, what might they expect to see if we've talked all about uh, muscle thickness measures um, with the, what's the name of this meat that you've been talking about today, Sam? <laughs> Pastrami, baloney, I don't know. Percentages. Let's talk percentages. What do we all think um, is realistic to to expect for the for the listener? I don't know who wants to start on this. I don't have a an answer here. <laughs> okay. I, I guess I'll, I'll kick it off. But I again, I I use percentages a lot less than I do magnitudes, and um, I have in front of me a table because. I have been working on this paper and I don't know if I'll ever publish it, but I, the idea of the paper was to look at normative changes in muscle size to, to give people expectations of what should you expect in biceps muscle thickness? What should you expect in biceps CSA? What should you expect in quadriceps muscle thickness? What should you accept, expect in quadriceps CSA? Um, and across 109 total conditions, the unweighted average was around 0.22, um, which is... I mean, the average biceps around four. So um, again, I- You're talking not, centimeters. Yeah, yeah, four centimeters. Uh, I could, I'm not going to pull out the baloney again, but um, you know, that's that's an eight-week change. In the quadriceps, it was only 0.26. So even though there's drastic differences in the size of those muscles, I think it's interesting that the, the absolute change um, 
is is um is actually pretty similar. And and I, I think that relates to again the allocation of resources, right? I think our body has a limited ability to add tissue over a given period of time. Um so I, I'm not answering your question of percentages, but I'm I'm sneaking in the idea of competing resources. So I, I do think that the concept of just acquiring tissue is is interesting because you know, you're you're placing a stress and you're you're trying to get an adaptation of of increasing your skeletal muscle mass. And um, you know, the the more muscles you train, you have that demand coming from multiple muscles. Um, so there's this idea that I think one of my former graduates is working on in his dissertation, allocation. If you train your biceps, your hamstrings, your glutes, your your if you train 10 muscles in a program, do you sacrifice growth across every muscle? as opposed to if you do a specialized program and you focus just on that muscle. And again, I'm going back to adaptation energy from Hans Selyer that he said, you only have a limited capacity to adapt over a given period of time. And adaptation energy is a very abstract concept, but I, I think, again, this might lend itself to why some of these research studies find pretty impressive things, because sometimes they leave out the back, they leave out the hamstrings, they don't train calves. There's less competition for allocation of resources, and resources are limited, adaptation is limited, and maybe that's why these snapshots are, you know, in, in some cases, I think pretty impressive. Because like I said, I don't think, you know, Steve's, I don't know, if Steve, oh, I mean, Holly, I don't, Holly, I'm going to say you're the most trained. Steve, I'm going to say that you are also very trained. And Menno, I think you're pretty well trained. Josh, me and you are scientists right now, so we can't be quite as trained as them. But um, I would wager that even though the average is 0.2 over eight weeks, um, the, none, none of y'all are getting a full centimeter if you extrapolate that math. It's, it's literally impossible. So like, again, we, we have to think about how do we actually apply this to real life? What does a study mean, right? And, and, and I'm, I'm rambling because it's such an interesting concept, right? I literally don't think you could repeat 0.2 five times in a year, even though in an eight week, I don't know if there's that many eight weeks in a year, there probably is. Um, like you, 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 you couldn't replicate that because your muscles would be too large. You'd be on the Olympia stage, right? So with focused training, um, I think, I think that's around the number that you said, Holly, it's around four to 8%. Um, Sometimes you see these 12s, these 13%, and this is where it gets, you know, very, very impressive in my opinion. Um, and that's where we had a lot of our conversation around today. So I'm taking too much of the time. I, Menno, Josh, you guys have thoughts? To, to answer your question, I think, yeah, that 4 to 8% number checks out to me. Um, obviously, depending on the training status and the, the study design, um, that's about what I saw in the the studies I looked at, and and I mentioned that earlier is about five percent. Um, this is kind of a, a quick look at uh, a handful of studies from our lab, um, kind of plotting all of the muscle thickness changes for pecs, and then two sites on the vastus lateralis. Um, looks like uh, I don't have the percentages here in front of me, but looks like the um, pecs is around two and a half millimeters. Um, and then the the vastus lateralis being uh, at the more uh, middle site being about one millimeter, and then at the the more distal site 
being about two and a half millimeters, um, which again, I don't know the, the percentage, but um, yeah, it seems like somewhere around 0.2 centimeters or two millimeters, um, which maybe corresponds with somewhere in that four to six, four to eight percent, I think is, is reasonable. Um, but that is a, a very, um, a, a very narrow look at the research in general. Um, I'm sure we do things that influence those, those results a little bit, um, in terms of our, our methodology. Another thing to think about is the uh, type of measurement used, uh, probably my favorite paper in the field is from Cody Hahn, something to the extent of biological construct of skeletal muscle, it's size matters, but so does the measurement. Um, and basically the, depending on the type of measurement you use, um, whether it's muscle thickness or it is some sort of whole body measurement or it is fiber cross-sectional area. Um, one of the, the studies, uh, one of the volume studies, the, the lead authors escaping me right now, use the cross-sectional area from ultrasound, right? These are all different methodologies that can influence the magnitude of change you see. So while I think it's important to contextualize it, different methods and different sorts of approaches are going to um, change uh, what you what you actually see in terms of the percentage or the the absolute difference. Yeah, if I, if I could add to, oh, you go ahead, man. I, I already talked. No, I was going to say I don't have much to add to what uh, you, Sam, and uh, Josh said. You knocked it out of the park in terms of factual reference data. I think, I think in practice, though, most people don't really know like what the, these percentages mean and stuff. Uh, if 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 I had to give percentages. I would say probably like I have a calculator on my website where you can calculate kind of what your a rough guide of your truly maximum natural potential. You can see the percentage of how far you are away from that. That might be more practically meaningful for most people. Like you know, two percent biceps growth. Uh, I mean, even if you do circumference measurements, I think it's very rough to um, to use that in practice. The, uh, the information. I think strength and total lean body mass or at least weight gain during a bulk, for example, might be more actionable measures um but yeah in terms of like the actual data for scientists and stuff i think sam and josh absolutely knocked it out of the park um i'll, I'll add one more thing because i you know josh was talking about some different muscle groups so it made me think um i don't think it's uncommon to see the similar a similar magnitude of growth between smaller muscles and larger muscles and i kind of have a, a maybe just a philosophical take on this um one thing that I've I've said in talks before is is largely I think we're limited by our measurement tools and you know Josh alluded to the importance of measurement, but um, <clears throat> for the longest time I think we have a good ability to say did you grow or did you not grow. Beyond that, I think that's where things become a lot more difficult. Teasing out a difference between two conditions is with our limitations on how good we are at our measurements and how precise our measurements are. Combined with how slow muscle growth tends to be, makes it really hard to detect differences. So, like for example, we're replicating the Schoenfeld study. I and my recommendations for volume, I said somewhere between three and four sets. So that should tell you that my hypothesis should be that the five set group or the forty-five weekly sets is going to be better than the moderate set. And I do think that that's probably true. Do I think I can measure that in my lab? I think it's going to be very difficult. I think I need to really know my area of my measurement. And I think I need a, a really decent sample size. And why do I think growth is going to be better? I think for a lot of people, three sets per exercise is enough. But I think for some individuals, you know, if if you 
if you do three sets, but your first set with junk, then you need a fourth set. And and how often is that first set? You you just like practically in the gym when you did a good set or when you when you did a set and you you didn't give all your effort. Like in my head, I don't count it. Right, but in research, you don't have that opportunity, and and it's not typically written in the methods to ask, um, were you giving it your all, or were you just faking that set, right? Or if you're having a bad day, sometimes I'm having a bad day, and two out of my four sets, like uh, I don't think I really gave that my all. I need to do a few more. Um, so I think the homogeneity of the response, like I think it's gonna be better in the five set group because I think there's a greater likelihood that everybody in the five sets actually fatigued and activated all the fibers involved in those movements. I think 70 to 80 to 85% in the three set are probably there, but it's that greater homogeneity in the response that's gonna drive the five set to be better. Now, can I measure that? Well, with the rate of growth that I expect to see and the difference you can anticipate to see between three and five being very, very small, I. I'm not confident that I could, and I have a lot of doubts. Um, so hopefully that gives a listener a little idea of, you know, I think sometimes this is how we think in science. And, and, and oftentimes I do expect differences in studies. I just don't, I don't think we're good enough to measure these differences. So then as a coach and a practitioner, um, you know, you have to make those decisions and you have to weigh it based on the weight of the evidence. Um, and, you know, our, our lenses are all a little bit different, but 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 me and Josh, I think, have, have become familiar with the limitations of what we're trying to do. Um, and, and like I said, every time I recruit train people, I'm just crossing my fingers. I hope they grow. I hope they grow. I hope they grow. Right. But there's so much variability in where they're starting. Right. You 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 recruit 50 people. They all say they train. Well, you find out pretty quickly that maybe 10 of them are pretty serious and, and very impressive. 20 of them, I don't know what you've been doing in the gym, but I, I'm not sure it's working too well. Or maybe, maybe I'm, it's, it's 10 of them, you know, but there's a lot of variability, which means that, you know, the variability of the response is going to make it incredibly difficult to demonstrate what you're trying to demonstrate. Um, so I, I think with continued good high-level science, it's going to become more and more clear. Um, but the... And where did I even start with this point? I think the measurement. Yeah. So the, the, our, our measurements are just a, a major limitation. Um, and, and that's another reason why when there are big differences, I'm like, whoa, like I, I know I'd have such a hard time finding this, which is so the study's cool, but I'm going to try to replicate it myself before I'm compelled to really buy in on this. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think guys, yeah, we've... We've almost done two hours and a half here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let you guys go. And I think this has been a really fruitful discussion uh, going around kind of the your study, uh, why there was it was made, the skepticism there, generally where you want to see the research go, how we can make this hypertrophy research better. Uh, I think that was a big part of why you did the paper in the first place is to give direction for people and where they're going to go. And it sounds like you're taking that direction too. Um, I'm excited for Josh's meta-analysis, meta-regression to come out on uh, volume and hypertrophy in the future. And I just want to say a massive thank you for you guys doing science and chatting to one another. Um, 
um, cogently through this. And I think we gave some really quality practical recommendations towards the end so that people can take this away and kind of feel like they've got a bit more direction and where they're going. And also how they can view social media and research that's being communicated too. I think that's probably given them some more tools at their disposal as well. So thank you very much, Art. I'll make sure that everyone's social media handles and their websites and everything are available or research gates so that the research and like I said, this paper also I'll have linked below as well so people can review that. Um, so I, I just want to say a massive thank you for you all taking the time to be here today. Appreciate it, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having us. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.